When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Praise youngsters and welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music. My name's Al Needham, but that is not important. What is on my special guest for this episode? David Stubbs. All right. And Taylor Parks. Afternoon. Good to have you back, chaps. So, has there, has there been anything popping interesting happening in your little lives? You must be joking. Okay, moving over to David. David, you've just finished your book, haven't you? Um, yes, I have. I finally um, um, sent in the um, yeah the proofs, um, and yeah, just weeded out like half a dozen little howlers from a sort of discography. I did shameful howlers, putting really yeah in the, I mean, you know, just I think I just done it in haste. This little kind of um, um, sort of. Um, not discography. What's the what's the what's the word? Playlist type thing at the end. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I put fascist groove thing instead of fascist oh, groove. Oh, fuck! Get off my fucking podcast now. Tell, that telex Moscow disco. I left a W off the disco. Just, I oh. mean, it's just rank incompetence. But fortunately, is it your fault though that these people couldn't spell? Well, even you know, that's one way I could sort of yes. I mean, this is it. I think that, that like my kind you were of, trying to to correct him, David, which was the right thing to do. Well, yeah, this is it. I, I you know, and it, 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 was terrible that was Slade, of course. You know, I mean, I, I really missed yeah. the point there. Yeah, good at synthesizers, shit on word processors, weren't they? Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, so when is the book coming out, David? It's coming out in autumn, I think. Might, unless they push autumn. it slightly forward. But, uh, yeah. Ooh. Well, well, we'll earmark that and we'll, we'll try and find a very synthy chart music for you when Lovely. that comes out. Lovely. And you can shill the book like fuck. <clears throat> Lovely. But for now, the only thing we're going to show like folk for now, Paul Craze Youngsters, is the fact that we've got a Patreon account. Oh, yes. Like every other podcast, we're on the fucking air roll for your money. And there's a good reason for that, isn't there, chaps? I mean, we've done... We've let, let me just do the pitch here and now, right? We've done 20 of these, right? We like doing them. You like listening to them. Um, and and we feel that now is the time that, that money exchanges hands. Um, just want to say right off the bat... It's not a give us some money or we won't do any more of these chart musics. That's 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 not going to happen. We're still going to do these. We just want to give you the opportunity to show your appreciation. But more importantly, we want you to help us get decent equipment. I've got a fairly decent microphone at the moment, which no doubt is going to be fucked up in the edit by me. But, you know, just listen to David. David, tell, tell the people what you're using at the minute. Um, no, I've um, yeah, I'm, I'm using I'm using a phone. It's um, I might as well be using well, one of those. That's fucking disgusting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's using it's not your good enough, phone, isn't it? yeah. Like a like a bloody correspondent in Angola in 1975. It's, yeah, that's right. Like there, a, there should should be a little box underneath yeah. your uh, underneath the screen in the bottom corner of you holding the, your phone to your ear. Yeah, like the 1972 Cup Winners Cup commentary. You know, it's yeah. It's, 
It's no good. It's not. It's not good enough, is it? It's not good enough for us, and it's certainly not good enough for the pop That's crazy right. youngsters who deserve to hear your smooth tones. Yes, yes, they do. Yes, velvet. Yeah, velvet exactly. Taylor, what are you using at the minute? Because you, you you had a decent setup, but it's it's not there anymore, is it? No, I'm I'm using a Zoom R8 uh, recording machine, but the good mic I had was borrowed, and it's had to go back. So have <sighs> a heart. Yeah, I'm it's now using terrible, the, isn't I'm it? using the built-in mic. Can you believe it? The built-in internal mic on a Zoom R8. But what's happened uh, is we launched the Patreon uh, account uh, a week or so ago. We've already got 75 people willing to lay the money down for chart music. And, oh, God, we want to thank each and every one of them. I mean, I did set up a, a tier where I said if you chucked in $3... Uh, you'd, you'd get mentioned on chart music and uh, yeah looking back on that now I, I, I really undersold that because loads and loads of people have piled in just want to thank a few of them right now so Jake Anthony Eder Patrick McNally Gareth Parkinson Jeff Rideout Richard Connell Roberta Donda Spencer Kelly Stephen Wilshire Barry Davis Neil Downer Stephen Dow Samantha Veal you all laid your money down on behalf of chart music, and we love you for it, don't we? We do. Yes, yeah, it's like being at a kind of cenotaph of 40-something misfits. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Putner, Simon West, Paul Williamson, Keith Auer, Satchmo Distel, Neil Killam, Paul Todd, Alan Fisher, Philip Bentley, Scott Murray, Graham Smith... Those names will live on forever in chart music history. Yeah. Go to patreon.com slash chart music. Make the pledge. Sign it in blood. Put yourself down. Be a pop crazy youngster for life. I'm excited now. This is only the beginning. We've got special bonus tiers that are in the works at the minute. Mm. And, you know, before too long, there'll be some very, very special chart music news. Let me tell you. It's going to be like Dennis the Menace fan club. I can sense it. So before we pile into the latest episode, we must make mention of the death of the NME. Chaps, were you were you lighting a candle in your window that night? It feels like it's about the fifth time it's died in some ways. I feel yes. like, like, <laughs> like all these kind of obituaries have been trotted out, every single one of them, including the words hip young gunslingers. I actually wrote a piece like that and pointedly did not once mention hip young gunslingers in it, which I think is the first ever time that's happened. Well played, um, David. But I mean, you know, even now it's still technically alive. You know, perhaps mm. it, you know it's on this kind of on, it's, it's online. So eventually, maybe they'll shut off that live support system for, and then yeah. there'll be a further round of obituaries. But it, it does feel like every single time there's some sort of. I think you know had the same thing when it went um, when it you know it shifted down size or whatever, and then when it became a free sheet, there were more obituaries. Then so you know, it was. I feel you know it's died several times, and it's possibly got at least one more death to come. Mm. I mean, obviously, you read it as a. Well, we've already we've already spoke about it, haven't we, David? You were uh, you mm. you devoured it as a youngster, didn't you? Absolutely, did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and it was a great time to be reading the magazine at that point because it was almost like they had readership to burn. You know, they they could do really provocative things and bring on new people. You know, like your Paul Moore's and Ian Penman, and you know, readership would kind of fall away, like you know, like sort of you know, like melting icebergs, but. Um, um, they finally felt this is the right thing to do. We can't just pander to Grateful Dead fans, you know, for the rest of our lives. We've got to evolve as a magazine, and they felt mm. they could afford to do that. Mm. 
And it was, really, it was really good in that respect. I actually wrote for the enemy in the yes, late 90s. Yes, you did, was, yes. Yeah, and I, as I may mention, it was a bit like when Dennis Law went to Man City at the end of his career, you know. I don't really remember much about it, um, but that was in the late 1990s. And there, things were just generally quiet and get, getting quieter and quieter. I mean, I think there's two things really with... I mean, you could... Some people sort of fasten the blame onto individuals, you know, for the decline of enemy at a certain point. But really, I think it's two things. The fact that it's owned by a corporation means that they don't really know what to do when, you know, the magazine goes into kind of decline and, you know, and appeals of things like that become more selective. And just the general abstract force, you know, of music. I mean, rock music became kind of ecologically exhausted. There were more and more places to read about the stuff. And then, of course, the internet came along. So I think, you know, it was... Inevitable, it was going to go into a sort of steep decline. But if it weren't owned by somebody like IPC, if it say been bought out the way that the wire was bought out by the people that actually worked for it, then it might have had a chance. Yeah, the first uh, the first inky music paper that I bought was the Enemy in '84 uh, or '85, and I didn't know who any of the groups in it were apart from the Smiths, and I didn't understand a word of what I was reading. Um, and it was great. There was like, I think the first one I got had an interview with Swans by Bieber Kopf. Mm. I was reading this stuff about sadomasochism and God knows what. And it's like <laughs> the most, the most opaque prose imaginable. Um, and I was hooked on it straight away, right? Um, which meant that when I eventually was working at Melody Maker, I got into so many arguments with people. The kids won't understand this. No, that's the fucking point. That's yeah. the, the kind of weirdos that buy music papers. Uh, it's aspirational, yeah. right? It's like uh, like when girls used to buy that magazine, Just 17. Like no one who was 17 bought mm. it. The point is they were 13 or something. That's why it was called Just 17, <laughs> because you always have to aim a little bit above yeah. the heads of the audience and signal to them that this is not yeah. for you. This is for someone better than you or a bit older than you or a bit more <laughs> sophisticated than you. That's how you get those people in. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is the thing. There was nothing that anyone could do to save the enemy anyway, because it wasn't just a matter of a magazine going shit. The death of the enemy is a consequence of the death of a particular part of our culture. Right. I mean, commercially, it's down mm. to tech making, making print unviable and stuff like this. But when you look at the real death of the enemy, the spiritual death of the enemy, which was in the late 1980s, you understand that the enemy couldn't exist anymore as it was, not within the mainstream, because that moment had passed. Um, mm. It belonged to a particular moment, to a post-war moment when a lot of things aligned improbably. Uh that whole generation of, of of pop. It's people in Britain were rich enough to spend time thinking about non essential stuff, but poor enough to be dissatisfied. Um there was enough tech to mm. enable mass communication, but not enough to enable complete withdrawal from culture. Uh and suddenly almost anything yeah. was permissible because we lived under threat of the bomb and we'd just beaten Hitler. And capitalism took a while to catch up with pop culture. So after a few twists and turns, you end up with this situation where something like the NME could be something as illogical as a music industry journal and consumer guide whose primary purpose was to undermine the whole concept of the music industry and of consumers, though not the concept of guidance. Um, and 
then yeah after about 1986-87 they became too frightened of being pretentious and it's true the old enemy was pretentious yeah. and sometimes absurdly so and could probably have done with being a bit less pretentious but that pretentiousness was mm. a waste product right it was a it was an inevitable consequence of letting bright young people overflow with ideas so it could be ridiculous but you also got all this other great stuff which was amazing and once you clamp down on any possibility of being pretentious you lose all that stuff too so all you're left with was this kind of chortling you know well i liked it approach to criticism which was pointless in the truest sense and padded out with student whimsy and you know eventually yeah. a kind of pseudo objectivity which of course is much more arrogant and pretentious than anything from the enemy circa 1981 because it's lost the saving grace of honest subjectivity um yeah, yeah. and it makes perfect sense that once that happened uh the secondary paper melody maker took up the slack and became the place where people had unusual ideas and wrote in unusual ways and did it very well for a few years, then a bit less well for a few years, uh, then not at all. Because that's the way that spirit went. And it went, it was in the mainstream, went out of the mainstream, into the darker corners of culture, then dimmer, then dimmer, then out. Yeah. Right about 1970, it's interesting that researching this piece that it, it, that's when Enemy made the transition, you know, via people like Charles Sean Murray. You know, it took a lot mm. of people from the underground press and became the kind of enemy that um, people sort of understand when they hear, you know, that particular acronym. But it's um, um, extraordinary at that point that IPC were, said they were going to close the paper in six months' time, about 1970, because it was only selling 150,000 copies. Jesus. Um, and the reason that it Fucking wasn't hell. in decline, I think, is that I think that the music had actually moved on and Enemy hadn't. Enemy was still very show busy. And um, I just, in, when they reviewed Sergeant Pepper, the last lines are something like, and in conclusion, the Beatles have furnished us with an album that not only make you tap, tap your toes, but make you think a bit as well. Yes. So that was the kind of critical language that they had. Even So the music was way ahead of the Enemy for a few years. Yeah. But then it, when people like Nick Kent and Charles Sean Murray were brought in, then it sort of developed a kind of a language and a discourse and outlook that, that matched the music. But it lived off that for so many years I mean even even when you look at some of the articles about the print edition closing they're still talking as if you know like 18 months ago it was the same as it had been in 1979 or something you know it'd been the same paper and been the same paper for for 30 years you know I mean like when when I started at, at Melody Maker when my generation of writers started at Melody Maker we chose Melody Maker you know, there was always this slightly sneering thing where people say, oh, I bet really you wanted to work for the NME. No, we didn't, because mm. by this point, Melody Maker had taken over um, from, it was it was the generation that David was a part of, right? Like Simon Reynolds and uh, Chris Roberts, Stud Brothers, David. They were the people who'd uh, put Melody Maker, had positioned Melody Maker as the paper that did what the enemy used to do. Uh, because the enemy couldn't do it anymore. And yet, we were there, and it was like, mm. you know, you'd read <clears throat> anything in the mainstream media, and it wouldn't, they would use the term NME rather than the term music press, right? That was the only music paper that ever existed, as far as they're concerned. So uh, we left, lived our lives in the shadows, being completely ignored, uh, which continues to this day. I always thought there was always a, a sad thing is that 
enemy was able to be kind of, um, you know, abbreviated. It was, it was a much better kind of, you know, acronym. It was, otherwise it'd be New Musical Express. But enemy trips nicely off the tongue. Enemy. You try to do the same yeah. with Melody Maker. MM. 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 It just doesn't. So we were stuck with the kind of the full term Melody Maker with all the kind of attendant staidness of like what seemed like a good title for a music paper in 1926. So I always think that that, that little phonetic quirk actually was part of Melody Maker's undoing. And as Simon said before, you know, uh, just better layout as well. Yeah, Covers yeah. always look better. Hmm. Yeah, I'm what it was, the enemy hmm. was, hmm. even when it was awful, it was professionally run, right? And boring, but yeah. it was very careful. Uh, and it was subbed and tweaked to the point where every article met a baseline standard of journalism, right? Even if it was stupid or wrong, or a tedious chore to read, or you know, however badly written it had been in the first place. When you read it, you felt that you were reading something competent. It was like this was the paper of record. Whereas Melody Maker was mm. not professionally run, at least not in any conventional sense. Like by the time I was there, uh, we had a hands-off editor. Uh, some of the section editors you suspected had got the job partly because they were the ones who could be trusted to be there at 10 in the morning and not turn up drunk and <laughs> half insane, you know. And we had subs who just did nothing all day and <laughs> would occasionally take a correct <laughs> fact or spelling and change it into an incorrect fact or spelling. Uh, so on the one hand, this gave us this tremendous freedom to write anything we wanted. And on the other hand, we had no direction and no guidance and there was very haphazard quality mm. control, which is why in the 90s we published all the best and most original and most daring music writing. But on the other hand, a lot of the paper was unreadable shit that no other publication in the <laughs> world would have dreamt of printing. And the funny thing is, quite often, the good stuff and the bad stuff was written by exactly the same people. It was chaos. It was complete chaos. But sometimes that's good, you know. Sometimes it's good to have that there. Um, and I can completely understand why a lot of people wouldn't want to read a paper like that, you know, paper that's, that's that haphazard mm. and which is always pushing, you know, pushing at the readers and pushing the boundaries of what it's allowed to get away with. Uh, but I wanted to read it and clearly a lot of other people did at the time. So it was not of no value. So, I mean, I was going to ask you if we're going to miss the enemy, but that's a stupid question because... The enemy we know we disappeared decades ago, didn't it? No, was it definitely. Yeah, that's that's really all he can say. Yes, I mean it, it's effectively been dead for a long time, as Taylor says. You know that kind of particular culture is dead, and, and it was partly it was inevitable that it was going to decline like that, but partly I think just because of, of of the ownership and the directions in which it was pushed by desperate marketing people who were absolutely clueless about what they were dealing with. Always the way. Mm. Fuck them. <laughs> Okay, well, pop craze youngsters, it's your lucky day because this episode takes us all the way back to May the 11th, 1995. Oh my God. This is the most recent one we've done, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And th this episode of Top of the Pops, it's got a lot of special guests on, a lot of exclusives, but one special guest in particular, Taylor motherfucking Parks was in the building, in the area, if you will. Oh yeah, Taylor, you wh why, 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 why? Why I was, um, I was there to write a 
flimsy cover story for Melody Maker on Supergrass, uh, which turned out to be a bit dishonest in the end because it read like a a good old bull session with these crazy wisecracking kids, where yeah. whereas in fact they were a bit unfriendly and boring to no but that's but that's how it was in those days you didn't go on tour with the rolling stones for four weeks and then write up an eight thousand word report when you sobered up you had 45 minutes on a lawn around the back of the canteen (laughs) talking to some uncommunicative lads with no real artistic purpose that they could articulate um, oh, that's terrible because the uh, I've got the article right in front of me right now. It's it's been preserved on the internet. Yeah, it's not very really good. And I, no, 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 Taylor, don't do yourself down. I read it now, and it's it. I'm getting the impression that that you and them are just the, the bestest mates ever. Uh, you, you do yeah. spend you do spend quite a considerable chunk of this article uh, deciding over uh, which members of Supergrass you'd have sex with. Yeah, for a 100% heterosexual man is uh, quite go-ahead, I thought. Different times. The thing about that article, what you have to do is locate whatever's diverting about the music and write the piece up in that style, like painting the group into the picture, Mm -hmm. which I got sick of doing really fast because it felt like dishonestly mythologizing people who were too daft to do it for themselves you know yeah and your reward was that they treated you like scum like a <laughs> an inferior species despite the fact that in most cases you could do their job better than they could do yours <laughs> uh, and it gets depressing quite quickly but it was a lovely day mm. um they were filming top of the pops at elstree at this point yeah uh the the former atv london studios uh prior to that one of the minor british film studios and subject of the best Buggles song. Yes. Um, but uh, it was good. We saw the cast of Grange Hill wandering yeah. about and straight off into the set of EastEnders, which is what everyone used to do when they were at Elstree for Top of the Pops. Mm. Um, the big standing set of Albert Square. Is that what it's called? I don't yeah. watch it. Yeah, at all the streets. It wasn't gated off or anything. You could go there and just walk straight into it and prod the... Queen Vic. It was squashy because it wasn't made out of bricks. It was made out of some space age waterproof material. Um, yeah, and in the end we got chased off, but fuck them, I never watched it anyway. But it was, yeah, being in the Top of the Pop studio is exactly what you would expect it to be like as a cynical adult, right? <laughs> I mean, being 22 or whatever at the time, I stood at the back like a grown-up, so unfortunately you can't see me in this episode with my forehead oh. of shiny dark hair and uh, cool suede jacket. Uh, <laughs> but it was a bit of a group experience because, of course, the kids aren't really an audience. They're set dressing. Mm. Um, and they're shifted around as coldly as if they were fake walls or potted They're furs. flown, as you, you'd say. Yeah, mm. yeah. But really, it's like watching one man and his dog, you know. Um, <laughs> it was a bit... A bit, a bit uh, bit disappointing you'd you'd come to the studio complex down this long road off Boreham Wood High Street or whatever and you'd see all the kids queuing up in the open air like the least important people you know yeah left until the last minute uh and then once it's a wrap they're just ejected <laughs> and uh all the stars drive out past them with their heads down you know <laughs> uh but you know it's still top of the pops isn't it was it the first time you've been in top of the pops Taylor 
Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. Was it the last? Uh, it was the last as well. Were you yeah. bothered? Nah, nah. It was, what I will say is that it was better than The Word. Um, yeah. Which which really was a, a really was a, a grim slog to get through a filming of that. So so how long did it take from start to finish then? Um, I don't know because I think I I uh, nipped out for a, a joint or something oh. halfway through because that was just the crazy nineties, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> I, I've I was watching this and there's a few acts on it that I've got absolutely no memory of watching. Right, right? like without wanting to spoiler this for the listeners uh there's a certain french canadian singer mm. on this episode that i'm fairly sure i would have remembered having to suffer that um and i didn't so yeah i think i might have used my journalistic privileges to uh nip outside in the uh, in the piece you wrote for melody maker you did you, you and the you and the chaps told her to uh shut up oh really i haven't reread this for yeah she shouted at them yes Oh, really? <laughs> I tried to sniff out some amusing Top of the Pops-related anecdotes for you, but I was unsuccessful. Sorry. Oh, except that Celine Dion was walking up and down the corridors practising her high notes, and we all shouted at her to shut that's up. Right, yeah. That's about it. How loud did you shout that, I wonder? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I want to know, yeah. Yeah, that was just uh, it was punk, punk rock, wasn't it? David, you ever been to Top of the Pops? No, um, I around this time I interviewed um, Jarvis Cocker after um, Smash Hits um, Awards, and I sort of right. sat through some of that, and that was extraordinary. And that was probably a very antithetical experience um, to Top of the Pops. Um, I've written about it quite a few times, but just mm. the sheer volume of noise that kids were making at this thing, you know, they absolutely it was it was like ten times my blood of Valentine. You know, the absolute kind of sheer. <laughs> screaming, keening, you know, kind of thing. It's just a sort of, like, phenomenon in itself. Um, not an awful lot would have, would have gone on at the top of the pop studios, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, the difference is with those sort of things, it's younger kids who really go for it. Um, the trouble mm. with the top of the pops audience mm. is that they're too old to, to scream and, and faint, but too young to be rowdy. So they just kind of tend to shuffle around looking a little bit mm. awkward. Mm. But there was, a, there was a long tradition at Top of the Pops of the audience just looking kind of immensely sullen. Um, understandably, probably the kind of day that you get put through, you know, the filming of any kind of show. But, um, yeah, there was it, it, there seemed to be some sort of um, rule against um, even... Well, I mean, occasionally you would get somebody in a pair of dealie boppers who would, like, you know, sort of, like, whip up a bit of manufactured enthusiasm. But by and large, I think that the kind of long-standing tradition of sullenness is definitely kept up in this particular show. And what, one thing I will say for this particular top of the pops although it didn't bring back too many vivid memories of actually being there uh it did bring back a lot of vivid memories of 1995 because if nothing else this episode is very representative so what was in the news this week well an Ebola outbreak kills 170 people in Zaire. The government begins talks with Sinn Féin for the first time in two decades. John Major predicts that he'll lead the Tories to victory in the next election. Mark Furman is suing the New Yorker for $50 million for calling him a racist twat. 
An Exeter University study claims that almost 50% of 16-year-old boys have tried marijuana or ecstasy. But the big news this week is that Rail Zaragoza have beaten Arsenal in the final <laughs> seconds of the Cup Winners' Cup final the night before. David, you must remember that. Bollocks. Where were you, David? I'm sat in front of the television on my own, just head just slowly arcing into my hands, the way that ball arced over bloody David Seaman and his stupid floppy head. And it was the fact that Seaman was sort of grinning about it afterwards as if to say, oh, you know, we'll have a laugh about this later, won't we? No, never. Naive. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember where I was when it happened, but I can remember where I was about 30 seconds later, under a hand dryer, getting the piss out of my trousers through laughing. Oh, all right, yes. Oh, oh, and by the way, David, it's a bit late in the day, but happy Nottingham to London one day. Yes, yes, thank you. Yes, yes. The annual celebration we have in Nottingham, well, I have in Nottingham, (laughs) never mind anyone else, (laughs) when uh, when the last London club's been knocked out of the Champions League. (sighs) On the cover of the NME this week, Paul Weller. On the cover of Smash Hits, fuck knows. (laughs) <laughs> Probably some lads with their shirts off, as was the style. The number one LP in the UK is Nobody Else by Take That. The number one single in the USA is This Is How We Do It by Montel Jordan. And the number one LP in America, Throwing Copper by Live. So, chaps, what were we doing in May of 1995? I and mean, we've only been talking about it for the past fucking half hour, but let's restate our positions. Well, I was working at Melody Maker, I was on the staff... People like um, Taylor were probably thinking, when is that old fucker ever going to leave that cosy little sinecure of a staff job he's got and move on? Because um, Well, with his incremental pay rises. Yeah, exactly, right, yeah. yeah, all of that. I'm sure it was a subject of bitter discussion down the pub when I wasn't actually in the pub, you know, because nobody was ever... It was very nice to me, you know, obviously. But, um, yeah, I mean, um, just... I mean, I was very disaffected with the kind of slide into kind of Britpop and stuff like that and the whole kind of laddism of culture mm. at that point and, and the kind of retro, perma-retro nature that indie guitar music was about to kind of settle into. But one mm. in one respect, I was very much of the times, and that is that I was kind of basically marinated in lager from pretty much midday to midnight every day. Chaps, can you, could could you possibly remember what was in that week's issue of Melody Maker? No, not not not. For... No, oh well. Fortunately, I asked our good friend Simon Price to go through his uh, collection of old Melody Makers, and he's reported back to me with this week's issue of Melody Maker. So, on the uh-huh. cover is Sean Ryder, actually black grape, but only Ryder's yeah. men. Only Sean Ryder's mentioned in big print on the front. Uh, under mm. the banner, Madchester strikes again. Oh, chaps, leave it alone. And in the subheadline, Sean Ryder on smack, crack, coke, fame, fuck-ups, obviously asterisk soused, and his fantastic mm. new band, Black Grape. The other Mank-based cover lines were True Confessions of the Stone Roses, The Second Coming of the Charlatans, and Joy Division Ian Curtis Remembered. The non-Mancunian mm. names at the bottom of the cover were McCormick and Butler, Supergrass, Foo Fighters, PJ Harvey, The Verb, Shaker Maker One, which was a Melody Maker-sponsored tour, and Paul Weller. 
In the news, that issue was that Neil Young will be playing Reading. Oasis have a new drummer, Alan White, brother of the Star Council, Steve White. The Manics, James Dean Bradfield, is about to join Therapy, a story that turned out to be bollocks. <laughs> uh, Snoop Doggy Dog was in court regarding his alleged role in a murder case. And Courtney Love is being investigated by the Los Angeles Child Welfare Bureau with a view to possibly taking the two-year-old Francis Bean Cobain away from her. What our contributors to chart music were doing? Well, Taylor, you must have been on holiday that week or something because there's, there's nothing of you in there. But Neil has reviewed uh, a gig by My Life Store, Drugstore, Goya Dress and Stum, which was the Maker Shaker gig in oh. Bristol. He hated Stum. He liked Goya Dress. He loved Drugstore. And he gave My Life Story a pass for their self-belief, even though they're backward looking. <laughs> Neil also reviewed uh, the album by Dog Eat Dog, which began with him moaning, oh, fuck, guys, why do you always lumber me with the rap rock shit? And Simon says that would be my fault as I edited that section. David Stubbs mm. reviewed The Simpsons volume 13 and 14 on mm. video, and he said they are the least childish programmes ever made. Mm. The singles page is reviewed by David Stubbs. Oh, wow. And do you remember what you made single of the week, David? Absolutely no recollection. Some might say, even oh, though yeah, it had yeah. already been yeah, reviewed two right. weeks earlier. Why? Why did you do that? Oh, no, because I thought it was good and I still do. And I think that the, an acquiesce on the B-side is even mm. better. Um, mm. Yeah, I was definitely not... I mean, this is, you know, this is only 95. A few months yeah. later, I would have slagged off What's the Story, Morning Glory, which I thought was deeply disappointing compared with this single. You know, I genuinely... I saw Oasis. I didn't really think of it in terms of retro and Britpop at this point. I saw them as a kind no. of continuum of, like, big guitar bands, you know, like people like, I don't know, Swerve Drive or wherever, or some of the kind of more kind of raucous shoegazery type bands. Um, I, I, I was... I, I think, you know, and I'm, like a lot of people, I think the first Oasis album is very good. So, yeah, 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 I'm not... I'm not I, I, yeah, I, I remember it now that you say it, but um, yeah, yeah, no, I'd stand by that. Some might say is definitely one of the good Oasis records. Uh, people, there's too yeah, much of this yeah. binary stuff going on these days. I got asked recently when it was the anniversary of uh, Be Here Now, which I had to review for many Yeah, There's people asking me about this, and people were like, why didn't he say it was the worst album of all time? It's not even the worst album Oasis made. <laughs> Single of the Week 2 is by the more stereotypically Stubbsian Tortoise. Oh, right. And he also has kind words for the Orb, Earthling mm. and Pinky McClure. Mm. However, he describes Green Day as corporate grunge bollock sweat. Yeah. Mm. Oh, nice, yeah. Oh, nice. I put sweat. That didn't just say corporate grunge bollocks that I kind of put in. Yeah, good. Yeah, nice little twist there. Yeah, good. I see. David Stubbs also reviews Paul Weller's new album, Stanley Road, oh, yeah. comparing Weller to Joe Cocker, disapprovingly, <laughs> yeah. and his fans to camera. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I bet you regret saying that now, don't you, David? I think I did take a little bit of a flat from that for that one. But, uh, you know, nothing yeah, I couldn't fuck handle. Him. Yeah. In the comedy section, Talk, 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 which we can exclusively reveal, was written by Stubbs. Fucking mm. hell, David, you're all over it. Yeah, yeah, busy issue. Well, considering he was making 150 grand a year, I should fucking hope so. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's something like that, yeah. <laughs> In the comedy section, Talk, 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 there's parodic Victorian-style drama called Lord Damon and Lady Justine oh, of Notting yes, yes, Hill. Yes, yes, with 
With Phil Daniels as the butler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Simon Price reviews TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool album and says it's fucking amazing. Concluding, if you only buy one swing beat album this year, well, let's face it, you won't, because you're all Oasis-loving indie pond life. But if, okay. In the gigs, for the flavour of the gig listings in Nottingham that week, you could have seen Wolfsbane, Smile Baby, Reef, Chaos UK, Fugazi and a Mega Dog Night featuring Banco de Gaia, Children of the Bong and Dread Zone. What a time to be alive. Yeah, <laughs> there's a full-page advert for Blur's upcoming Mile End Stadium show, also featuring the Boo Radleys, Sparks, Dodgy and Cardiacs, compared by John Shuttlemouth. Simon and Taylor were there. We met Joe Strummer at the after show in York Hall, an old East End boxing club where Drummer said the thing about Elvis Costello being a cunt, previously mentioned in chart music. Oh, and on the back page, there's an advert for Loaded, which also has Sean Ryder on the front. I must have, I'll have probably taken the rest of the month off after that, that, that load. Yeah. Yeah, you put some serious work in mm, there, David. Yeah. I'd forgotten about those Shaker Maker tours. It was always a bit embarrassing because <laughs> it had nothing to do with us. They'd just hire these groups. And a lot of the, yeah. t- I think they did a few of them. And a lot of the times it would be like, who the hell are these groups? I've never heard of them. <laughs> yeah, who we've got to write yeah, about now. It's like they were uh, literally under our banner and they were supposed to be representing us. And it was like, we didn't know who they fucking mm. were. Who the hell was Stum? I'd never heard of them. For fucking, what a Britpop name, though, that is. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't tell we cushed it and lovely jubbler. <laughs> well, while you were uh, living your dreams out in Popland, I was working for Northern and Shell, um, Richard Desmond's wank factory, <laughs> uh, as picture librarian for 20 wank mags. <laughs> so that would be Penthouse, uh, Electric Blue... Readers' Wives, Real Wives, Asian Babes, um, Big and Fat. Uh, yeah, all the greats. Yeah. My role consisted of kind of like basically being in a tiny glass office in the Docklands uh, with 30 bin bags full of transparencies of um, fannies and whatnot and, um, and having to piece them all together into sets like a, like a big pornographic jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> so, yeah, I was uh, literally up to the fucking armpits in, in, in grot at this time. Uh, not paying the slightest bit of attention uh, to the charts at all. Mm. I was still massively into hip-hop. Mm. Uh, my only contact with BBC Radio would have been Westwood at this time. I think he was, I think he was on on Friday nights. Um... And that, yeah, into me hip hop, listening to Jungle, Pirate Stations. Uh, I definitely didn't see this because I'd either be commuting back home or I'd be in the pub getting hammered. So, yeah, there we go. Happy times. So, what else was on telly this night? Well, BBC One has run Kilroy, Good Morning with Anne and Nick, Pebble Mill, Neighbours, Going for Gold, and the Mario Lanza film for the first time, before piling into Pingu, Why Did the Chicken, Speed Racer, The Ant and Deck Show, News Round, the sci-fi series Escape from Jupiter, and then Neighbours, the 6 o'clock news, and regional news in your area. 
BBC Two has screened Westminster Online with Andrew Neil, the clip show The Hollywood Collection, Westminster with Nick Ross, the history show Today's a Day, the Benson and Hedges Golf International, Quantum Leap, and are currently screening a repeat of The Mrs. Merton Show with Mandy Smith and Ken Livingston. ITV has broadcast Win, Lose or Draw, The Time, The Place, This Morning, Home and Away, Emmerdale, A Country Practice, Vanessa, Battle of the Sexes, Then the Riddlers, Wizardora, Garfield and Friends, Samson Super Slug, <laughs> Animaniacs, After Five with Karen Keaton, Home and Away again, and he's currently screening Emmerdale again. And Channel 4 has run The Big Breakfast, You Bet Your Life, Schools Programme, Sesame Street, Channel 4 Racing, 15 to 1, Ricky Lake, The Cosby Show, and has just started Channel 4 News. Oh, oh God, so much television, four whole channels. Yeah, so much Bill Cosby there. Didn't he do You Bet Your Life as well? Yes, mm-hmm. I think he did, yeah. Samson Super Slug, that sounds like a fucking band <laughs> from 1995, doesn't it? <laughs> They're probably on the uh, Shaker Maker tour. <laughs> All right, then, pop crazed youngsters, it's time to roll deep on 1995. And know this we may code down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Although Taylor's been on it once. <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you didn't. You don't. You didn't actually see me. I I went through that thing looking closely to see if I could see myself anywhere, but no. Oh. I seem to remember I was keeping out of the way of the cameras. I don't know why. <laughs> Hello, UK. I'm Celine Dion, live and exclusive on Top of the Pops tonight. <laughs> It's 1995 and there's been another change around on Top of the Pops with the introduction of a new head of light entertainment for the BBC, David Liddermont. There's a new set, a new logo, a new theme tune and an emphasis on exclusive live performances. And the show begins with a long shot of Celine Dion slorming about on the new Top of the Pop set like she fucking owns the place, telling us that she's live and exclusive on Top of the Pops tonight. Oh, spoiler alert, Celine. Yeah, she says, hello, UK. This is Celine Dion. Uh, This is a time when UK was like a term that only people who weren't from the UK would ever use, right? You know, like when you let mm. Americans go, is it like that in the UK? <laughs> but we've got a brand new theme, chaps. The ninth and last original Top of the Pops theme, Red Hot Pop, has been in effect since February of this year and was written and performed by Vince Clark of Eurasia. Chaps, where where does this stand in the Top of the Pops canon? I mean, he doesn't exactly put his back into it, does he? He's, uh, he's a bit perfunctory, no. it has to be said. And I can imagine him doing it with one yeah. hand while he's rolling a fag or yeah. something and tucking it behind his hair. I, I imagine that there's a touch of sarcasm about Red Hot Pop yeah. as a title. It's like, it's mm. like, yeah, rock till you are hot. Yes, it's a bit punk, yeah. <laughs> well, we don't hear a lot of it, do we? It's just a... No, no, this is it, that's right. That's probably... It's a bit kind of, you know, it's almost like, the, you know, there's a silent will this do at the end of it. Yes, definitely, yeah. But your host for this evening is Simon Mayo. Born in Enfield in 1958, Simon Mayo originally wanted to be a radio studio manager but failed the hearing test and had a go at being a DJ instead. 
After a spell in hospital radio, he joined BBC Radio Nottingham in 1981 and worked in the mid-morning slot for five years until he pitched a show format at Johnny Beerling, the then head of Radio 1, and was duly poached. He started in the Saturday evening slot at Radio 1 in 1986, was moved over to weekday early evenings in January of 1988, and five months later usurped Mike Smith as the breakfast host, a position he held for five years. At this point, he's in the Simon Bates slot at Radio 1 between Chris Evans and Lisa Lanson, and according to the listeners of the day, he's announced his regular God of the Week, <laughs> Woody Allen. Uh, uh. Mm. Yeah. He's also currently presenting a TV version of his Radio 1 slot Confessions, which is running on Saturday evenings. Did I you mean, say he was born in 1958? Yes. So in this Top of the Pops, he's pushing 40. Mm, he's, yeah, he's, he's 37. You've got to say, he does look... Does look good for his age. It's like Ned mm. Flanders. It must be all that praying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Always re- known as the religious one at Radio One, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's creepy. It's like I mean, one thing you can say for Simon Mayo is that he's a very natural and relaxed presenter, mm. and by the standards of Radio One DJs, he's quite intelligent and articulate. But yes. his actual presence is. He's not much more than a better educated Mike Smith. And yes. It's just that knowledge that behind the scenes he's a Christian nut, you know. I don't want to see that on TV, especially Top of the Pops. It's the... It's just... I can't stand people who are bright and religious because it's not mm. natural, right? It's not, mm. it's not... It's not God's way. It's that they're always <laughs> the most dangerous people as well. I mean, apologies to my handful of uh, Christian friends, uh, but, yeah there i said it but it's like right there's a clip which i know you've heard al um, yes for a program that he made for radio one which was simon mayo's pilgrimage to the holy land yes there's a a trailer for that which i've had (laughs) for years and if ever i need cheering up i'll put it on because it's it's the perfect test of character right if you can hear this clip and you don't laugh out loud you're not right spiritually. I, yeah. I don't trust anyone who doesn't laugh involuntarily as soon as they hear it. Yeah, but, oh, God, if there's ever a time we needed Simon Mayo in the Holy Land, it's now, isn't it? <laughs> he could unite the the Jews and the Palestinians with, uh, you know, with with some wet, wet, wet and some free T-shirts. Yeah, and a sort of slightly schneidy remark about the week's news. Mm, yes, yes, he's very good at that, isn't he? He's a bit of a strange presence in, in, in this show for various reasons. Um, he's not exactly in the thick of it, is he? I mean, you know, maybe it's no. considered sexist by this point to have, like, male DJs, especially ageing ones like himself, to be have, you know, like young women draped all over them trying to get into camera. But it, it's mm. something a little bit odd. He doesn't. He seems slightly kind of aloof from the fray. And um, yeah. it's almost as if he's been photoshopped in or he's invisible. You know, he's like one of these kind of, like, mock invisible characters that you in Shakespeare would have, you know, deliver prologues <laughs> and stuff. He, He's, he's extraordinary. He doesn't see as if like no one else there is acknowledging is acknowledging his presence. Nor you know, um, that not yeah. even aware that he's there. It's you know, it's just some sort of feat of camera trickery that he's able to kind of be projected into the studio and be making all these kind of yeah. tricks and what have you. It's, it's very odd indeed. Yeah, because he's, he springs. I yeah. mean, uh, David, you always say about the darkness above the stage. Now in 1995, the darkness is below the stage. Yeah. 
and and Simon Mayo emerges from it. I'll tell you what, it's a bit like, or it's like a bit like Randall it's Hopkirk fucking deceased. Terrifying, isn't it's like it? A ghost. It's like Randall Hopkirk deceased. You know, where he's kind of, yeah. sort of like, you know, lingering on the side there, unseen by the people about yeah. whom he's talking, and then it suddenly leap out. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. Wasn't he brought in? Wasn't he brought in in the the Bannister reforms? He, he was brought in just before, wasn't he? But he'd worked with the. Uh, Bannister and Trevor down at Radio Nottingham. It was there was a, yeah, yeah there was a very sort of brief Kerensky like phase where the, the, the interim where people like I think they were trying to kind of Emma Freud Radio One didn't they and they tried to kind of give it a little bit of a, a slightly more intelligent sort of um, thoughtful lift and I suspect that Simon Mayo was a little bit part of that. Then along comes Chris Evans yeah. just to squelch all that into oblivion. <laughs> yes, because yes. I thought that was all bollocks at the time. Anyway, you were supposed to. You're supposed to, oh, it's great. Matthew Bannister's got it. He's a new broom. I thought it was crap. Mm. It was he was just swapping one outmoded kind of clueless shit for a, a more modern kind of clueless shit that was mm. worse in some ways because it thought it was clever. Right? At least the old DJs were grotesques, and mm. you know the channel bosses were just going in there and doing a job. Uh, when the problem is when the boss thinks he's cool, uh, that's when you've got a problem. Mm. In a way, Chris Evans is a sort of synthesis of that. He's kind of a grotesque, but is also melded with this kind of half-assed irony. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the yeah. thing that struck me was, you know, in 1988, uh, Mike Smith was dropped as the host of the Breakfast Show, and Simon Mayo was was put in. But did anyone notice? <laughs> I mean, it's like Peter Davidson coming out of uh, of Doctor Who and. Uh, Peter Davidson going back in again with a you know with a with a wig on. It's like this transformation shit. Yeah, what it is, Mike Smith is like. It's you imagine Simon Mayo looking back at Mike Smith is like someone of about thirty looking back at themselves at about nineteen and thinking that's recognisably me, but I was a bit more of a wanker. Hello, good evening. Could I interest you in some super grass? Could I really? Mayo, in a fawn-coloured suit with black t-shirts and adopting the suits you, sir, tone, which was so popular in the early 90s, introduces the first act, Supergrass, with Lenny. Formed in a Harvesters in Oxford in 1993, where two of the band were working, Supergrass were a three-piece who released their debut single, Caught by the Fuzz, on an independent label in mid-1994. After being signed up by Parlophone Records, Caught by the Fuzz was re-released, became single of the week in Melody Maker and The Enemy, but just missed out on the top 40. But the next single, Man-Sized Rooster, got to number 20 in February of this year. This is the follow-up, a Melody Maker single of the week, and it's a new entry this week at number 10. So, Taylor, these are the people who brought you to the dance. Yeah, and embarrassingly, this is not one of my favourite records of theirs. Um, I did like them, and their first album, I think, still sounds quite good. But the mm. thing is, one of the defining features of Britpop is that it was small music, right? It was loud, but small and mm. unserious and unoriginal, which don't have to be terrible things, but often were. Uh, and this record, I mean, basically, this is just the Groundhogs, but 
miniaturized like musically and physically which is a bit mm. pointless really and i think this was this was the beginning of the end for supergrass already their artistic downfall starts here because that smallness and lack of seriousness and lack of artistic weight and lack of originality they don't matter much when you're doing pure pop right when you're yeah. doing like sort of speedy bubblegum transistor radio rock which is what their earlier records were um, and in a way, it's better to be like that and to sound like that. It works for the music. But they were determined to move into heavier, more traditional mojo-type music really early on. Mm. Um, mm. And doing that without either the necessary heft to your sound or any new ideas to make it your own. I mean, that really is the bore of bores. That's how you end up with stuff like the stereophonics. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's bland and retro. And the lack of new ideas is almost the point of the music. And you can't even achieve your own limited goals because on those terms, you're clearly and hugely inferior to the music you're copying, you know. Uh, I don't know. I mean, this is all right. And it Ah, gets enough right that it stands out from most of the bands that they were competing with. But it's it's not an A-side. And... As you no. listen to it, you keep hearing them ignoring possibilities as it goes along. You keep hearing them ignoring ways to make this record more interesting. Uh, yeah. There's enough going on that stuff keeps coming up that could have been made into something startling, but it just sort of shuffles along. It's the middle-class stoner band disease, really. You know, like you, however good you are, you, you never really break out and do your own thing. Uh, yeah. And I like that first LP, but I do remember seeing them live around this time and seeing what was happening. Uh, Mm. It was like classic rock fans from Oxford living their dream, you know. And their best Mm. stuff was obviously early material from when they were a bit looser and sillier. But they wanted to get pseudo-serious really fast. And this is where it starts. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't know who Supergrass were by now, and I certainly didn't watch this episode of Top of the Pops. I mean, All Right is my point of contact with them. Um, but to be honest with you, this is the first time I'd ever heard this song. And, uh, my, my initial impression was what a very apt title it was, because to my mind, this is shaking Kravitz. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's biker music, but like, you know, biker mice. Yeah. Mm. And the the, the verse sounds, the verse sounds like a sort of indified Steeler's wheel. You know, it sounds like it's kind of, you know, some sort of color version stuck in the middle with you. I mean, I agree with Taylor. It it kind of clatters along fairly effectively, but kind of uncertainty really, as if it's not quite sure, you know, where are, you know, are they sort of neo-grunge or are they sort of proto-rip-pop? It's sort of caught in between there somewhere. And, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's somehow it's not nondescript. There's enough energy, there's enough sort of dynamism about it, enough understanding of the dynamics of that kind of music to make it just about work. But um, I think what I was most aware of throughout this performance, though, is, is actually the lights. Um, you know, that they're almost like, you know, mm. it, it, it's, you know, I mean, I've always talked about, you know, the, the lights and the kind of zones of darkness, but the, they're bizarre. It's a bit like you've been kind of caught escaping from prison or war camp or something like that. These kind of flashlights coming yeah. right at you from all angles. Yeah, there's there'd be a lot of epileptics at home not really appreciate Definitely, this you know, it's, it's, it's as if it's kind of sort of trying to you know really kind of project an energy that may not necessarily be there you know in music circa 1995 mm. yeah it feels a bit sort of uh, ungenerous 
like having a snipe at this because it's you know this is an okay record it's all right and one thing you can say for this is it's got a a not bad production for a british 90s guitar record right it doesn't sound cheap it's not just a sludge there's not too much echo on it which was the curse of guitar music uh in that time and the rhythm section sounds a bit raw which is nice and very unusual for british music and compared to their peers this is a good sound even though it's tinny as fuck compared to older better records but i just i know and understand this kind of music too well to be generous and like david says they clearly know and understand this kind of music too but that's the best and the worst thing about this record in that they know what they're doing but they can't break out past mm. it i mean in your uh, in your piece for melody maker at the time you described it as uh the uh, deep purple jam right, with the yeah. muppet babies yeah. What? Yeah, well, that's that, that, that's, that's pretty potential. good, man. Mm. Yeah. See, I I don't want to sound you know mm. I sound like an old man griping, but I was just the same at the time. I mean, the <laughs> the thing is, just because I spent the mid nineties uh, flying around the world and other people's money, uh, drinking too much, taking drugs, and sleeping with beautiful young women, and going out every night until dawn when London was still a living city. Uh, and only having to work three days a week. That doesn't mean I enjoyed it. Right? <laughs> it, was, it was a very frustrating time to be young um, mm, mm. and a very frustrating time to be writing about pop music because enough of the old world was still in place that you could almost mm. make it work. It was like you could see the outlines of old possibilities uh, just mm. as they faded away. Well, there you are, yeah. I mean, I think that this is probably what was casting a shadow over all that sex and drugs and partying and wassailing. Is that perhaps that sense that you know rock's reaching a kind of a terminus? It's 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 got to the point now. I think rock music post My Bloody Valentine, post Nirvana, where rock music like this can either go in two directions, either go backwards into the retro realms of retro auto extremes, which make it kind of. Um, you know, unlistenable in the context of something like Top of the Pops, um, you know, as to go into The Wire or something like that. I mean, the same thing happened with jazz at the All Nick Coleman stage, you know, post-bebop. And I think that's the stage that rock music has, in India has reached about this time. Um, I think probably, the only clues would go along, that, that part of the appeal of the, this time is the idea of, like, this music representing an authenticity in a kind of music scene that's increasingly kind of, like, you know, produced. It's a bit unfair mm. on Supergrass to take out this stuff on them because they were exactly, on yeah. one of mm. the better groups and there's yeah. something coming up later where you know which is much <laughs> oh, yeah. more deserving of this but <laughs> yeah yeah you know they they could and did do better so the following week lenny dropped 21 places to number 31 fucking hell that's terrible isn't it yeah that's a shock yeah we're still in that phase where records just go up and down dead quickly don't they I don't think that was to do with being such a lacklustre performance or anything like that it was probably just the nature of the way that like music was being fairly swiftly bought and then not bought the week after yeah Top of the Pops really isn't doing much for putting people over it's mm. it's become more of a reward for getting into the charts yeah. as opposed to a uh, a spurring on to get higher in the charts but that quick peaking and fast dropping chart performance has always been typical for like uh, indie records because um, it's bought by the fan base right everybody goes out mm. and buys it in the first week because mm. they read music papers or listen to you know they know it's coming out so they all go out and buy it at once was that reflected in your coverage in the melon maker you knew, you knew that 
that when something was coming out, you had to jump on it quick or it, it would go out the charts. Yeah, everything was based oh, yeah. around. Yeah. yeah, everything was based around releases. It's astonishing. I used to think I was a sophisticated reader of like the music press, and it didn't occur to me until I actually started writing for the music press. The, the, the interviews and things like that were actually tied in with album releases. And I thought, oh my goodness, are they? You know, I just thought that people. Would, I just thought the interviews were sort of conducted on a much more kind of you know random basis than that. Oh, just met them in the street or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. However, their debut LP, I Should Coco, entered the chart at number three the same week, eventually becoming number one. And the follow-up, All Right, jumped straight into the chart at number two in July of this year and stayed there for two weeks, held off the top by Boom 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 by the Out Here Brothers. And they'd have ten more top ten hits before splitting up in 2010. What's their legacy? Supergrass are kind of seen nowadays as as one of the also runs of Britpop, which seems a bit uncharitable from uh, from from where I'm standing. Yeah, they're sort of like the Tottenham Hotspur of Britpop, like sort of just just at, at the mm. bottom end of the top tier. Yeah, uh, they're all right, mm. you know. But yeah, this was it. I mean, they don't have a legacy because they're the sort of band that can't have a legacy because uh, nothing they did uh, broke any new ground. Something for everyone on tonight's show. Unless you're a rugby union administrator. Shed Seven are on, Celine Dion is on, Scatman John is on, and at six foot eight, here is Montel Jordan. points out that there's something for everyone in this week's show unless you're a rugby union administrator. Uh, This was the week that Will Carlin was removed and then reinstated as England rugby captain after he called the RFU 57 old farts. Ah, That Mayo, he's a a proper Millicent Martin, isn't he? He is, isn't he? (laughs) Also, as he does that introduction... There's a girl standing behind him doing that nervous 90s thing of putting mm. her hair behind one ear with one hand, right? Yeah. Well, do girls still do that? Why am I asking you? I don't you? know. They all, like, they as, all... as if you two hang around outside schools or something. <laughs> you know I mean? But it's just, that's my memory of uh, of, yeah. uh, of a sort of 90s nervousness that I don't perceive as existing in young people nah. anymore. Now, nowadays, uh, uh, girls of that age kind of, like, get all the hair and then just fucking lob it over one shoulder like Kate does because they're all fucking sheep. (laughs) (laughs) So he introduces This Is How We Do It by Montel Jordan. Born in Los Angeles in 1968, Montel Deshaun Barnett was a college graduate who worked on infomercials in the early 90s until he was spotted performing in a showcase by Janet Jackson. After a mixtape of his was passed on to Russell Simmons, he signed a deal with Def Jam Records, making him the second R&B artist to be signed by the label after Tayshaun in the mid-80s. This is his debut single, which is a crafty nick of the 1989 Slick Rick single Children's Story, which itself was a crafty nick of the 1974 Bob Jane's tune Nautilus. It's a new entry at number 11, it's been number one in America for four weeks, and he's 
he's here in the studio for the first time. Notice that there's, there's a weird little feature they've got here, very perfunctory, that in the top right-hand mm. corner, they announce where, yes. where, where each act is from, don't they? Yeah. From, from Oxford. That's my job. Bastards. From LA. It reminds you, like, with referees, they always tell you, like, and uh, yes. match referees days, and Mr George Johnson from Retford. You know, always, Bishop Stortford, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, had, it was it with was insistence that that tells you all we need to know, really. He's from LA. They're from Oxford. I'm presuming Manchester yeah. not, they'll say from Manchester, presumably. For, <laughs> but the thing about, there was a lot of this kind of stuff in on top of the pops where they couldn't really bring in the whole kind of rig of like instruments and machines and little boxes or whatever that, um, that, that, that required to kind of, you know, put this music together. And so, and, but you know, that, 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 that was kind of a bit awkward really. So I think you always have a troop of dancers there because then people think, well, it's all cheating. You know, we want to see some mm. hard work, like you know, like you saw Supergrass. Yeah. They're working hard on their instruments, and they're sweating they were, a bit. We want to see, want to see evidence of hard work, so they bring in dancers. Well, dancing—that's hard work. You know, there's got to be mm. some spectacle of effort. I think yeah. you get a lot of this, and there's a lot on on on, on this on this particular edition, um, and that's how they kind of cope with it. It wasn't really quite satisfactory. The music now comes from the sky or somewhere like that. You know, there's no <laughs> sort of connection between the production of the music, the physical production of the music, and the resultant sound. Yeah, hip-hop spoiled everything, hasn't it, to uh, to these people's minds? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because yeah. We're, we're not, we're not going to see any proper rappers on this episode, and there, there aren't that many in the charts, but mm. hip-hop's fingerprints are all over this episode, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of hip-hop, really, isn't it? Mm. Mm. So Montel Jordan, who um, uh, Mayo points out is dead tall, is um, doing his thing in a in a stripy Tommy Hilfiger top, or as my dad used to call him, Timmy Highflyer. <laughs> yeah, it looks and like he's got some sort of mid nineties Sheffield United kit or something. You yeah, know I mean? well, I, I I saw him as a more urban bully out of Bullseye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rest in peace, Jim Bowen. But it's that it's that really crass thing of wearing clothes with words on them. You know what I mean? Mm. I, I, especially other people's names. If you've ever seen Mr. T's motivational video for kids, Be Somebody oh, or Be or Somebody's, be somebody's fool. fool. yes. Yeah, which is a, a stunning tour de force of totally empty Reagan-era positivity. The one yeah. really good bit of advice he does give is to avoid designer labels because yeah. he says... Uh, would Calvin Klein, Bill yes. Blass, or Gloria Vanderbilt wear clothes with your name on them? No, mm. of course not. Yeah. No. Although, although table the, the label. I remember he said. I didn't yeah. don't exactly know what that means, but it rhymes, and that's all that mattered in the mid eighties, didn't it? Although, of course, in the early eighties, uh, Coventry City did wear shirts with his name on them. Although yes. that gag may be yes. a, a little arcane for some listeners. I mean, the other great um, bit of advice from that excellent video, as you point out, is, um, you know, if you're walking along the street and you fall over, uh, stop breakdancing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, people will think you did it deliberately. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm pretty sure that would just make matters worse, really. Well, it depends, doesn't it? So anyway, this song, it's your usual R&B lyric, isn't it? You know, all oh, I'm minted, all all the girls want to shag me. Uh, we're all dead poor, but we're all dead rich at the same time. And mm. yeah, everybody's getting pissed up and nobody's killing each other. Mm. Isn't it great? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. this song, I've I, I got I to gotta admit, to me, this is the highlight of the show. Didn't really like it at the time because it was such a blatant nick of Slick Rick. But 
you know, if, if this came on in the club, uh, I might, you know, mm. bust a move with the honeys mm. yeah, and make a right cunt to myself, get laughed at. Yeah, I, I was quite into this stuff in the, in the high summer of Britpop. And a lot of us were because we were sort of desperate to get away from, from the Britpop, you see. Because you'd walk down the street, like where I lived, and all you'd see was endless kids in charity shop Adidas tops and old corduroys with long hair, you know, hanging around smoking and stuff. And mm. that, it, if you had to spend time around that stuff for work, it just became an extension of the rainy streets and dog shit, you know. You started looking for a bit of an escape. So... Um, at home, I wasn't listening to any of that stuff. I was listening to old stuff and pirate radio, which was huge in London at the time, uh, and loads of reggae and stuff. But also a lot of yeah. this, this West Coast stuff, because it was less musically interesting than what was happening on the East Coast, but mm. um, it was so much further away from London in atmosphere. So you could listen yeah. to it and mentally drift away a bit, right? Like, I know that Pricey got obsessed with this LA stuff at the time. Oh, Price um, Cube, yes. Yeah. I didn't quite so much because I don't really like the city, but I got hooked on that that weird open sound, you know? Um, mm. And it's, like, dead commercialised and all of that stuff, but it's, like, it's fine. It's fine. It's good. It's just a, a sort of a pure sensual experience. Uh, but when you like this, you said you like this stuff, people thought you were joking, you know? If you worked on the press, mm. people expected you to like pinched indie rock. Um, yeah. And it's weird. Most people, it's a cliche, but most people in the music business had no ears, had no feeling for music at all. It's not they didn't like it. They just didn't get it. You know, they didn't trust themselves. We've got to mention the, uh, the, the dancers uh, because they're, they're, uh, there's fucking loads of them in this episode, isn't yeah. there? Also been, there must have been a, 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 you know, a, a whole annex of Elstree devoted to, uh, you know, keeping the dancers somewhere. Well, this is it. They're there to provide evidence of exertion and effort and work. Mm. Mm. And it kind of works with Montel, Jordan, because you know the dancing's going to be of a standard. Yeah, also speaking of of work, um, pretty much everyone's doing live vocals on this Top of the Pops. This was like part of the thing at the time. Now, you can't really tell with Montel, Jordan, because that sort of vocal style, you know... You can just you can you can just do it. You don't. There's no worries about hitting wrong notes or anything because it's like. Uh, mm. uh, but yeah, again, that's a, another example of like. So no, you, you've got to be seen to be earning your corn. You know. Yes. Um, and all it does is it means the vocals sound worse on everything. Yeah, than you, they did on yeah. the record. You don't get what you want because you can't actually generate live excitement. Uh, when you're no. singing live vocals to a, a pre-recorded backing track. It's not possible. Mm. Anyone who's ever made music knows this. The The excitement in a live vocal comes from, you know, the entire music being created live. You can't basically karaoke it and expect to uh, expect to improve on the, on the record. Mm. It's weird. It's all right, though, isn't it, this? I mean, what happened to the West Coast? It's like you listen to this or any of the other good records from that year like uh, Regulate by Warren G or mm. Freak Like Me by Adina Howard. Was that a West Coast record? It certainly sounded like one. You can hear yeah. what's coming already, right? Like here as well. Yeah. This good music uh, contains the launch code for its own destruction. You know what I mean? Because it's yes. so thin and sort of translucent 
It's like one more yeah. joint or one more line of coke or one more 40 ounce. Um, it all falls <laughs> to pieces because there's nothing yeah. to it. But I mean, that's what happens when you live somewhere like that, isn't it? I mean, hip hop's start, already starting to devour itself, isn't it? Yeah. And this is not technically hip hop, but it, it kind of is. Yeah, well, it's R&B with a bit of rapping on it, isn't it? But yeah. that's what a lot of West Coast hip-hop was like at the time. But this is what happens when you live somewhere like LA and you get money. It's like you can't yeah. be anything other than complacent because it's mm. a terrible city that's too hot and too empty, you know. And then you listen to this. Already it's just about money. It's the only subject that he's got. You know? yeah. Happiness comes down to money. Sex comes down to money. Self-worth comes down to money. It's like you've got no pride at all you know mm. and it's patronizing to say oh it's just the background that these people come from you know what i mean because mm. <laughs> it's like no it hasn't always been like that and it doesn't have to be like that um that was always what used to piss me off about it partly because i didn't have any money so the following week this is how we do it dropped three places to number 14 jesus and then clambered up and stayed at number 13 for two weeks the follow-up Something for the honeys would get to number 15 in September of this year and he'd have three more hits in the UK before falling out with Def Jam and becoming the lead worship minister at Victory World Church in Atlanta. Oh, Simon had approved of that one, too. <laughs> of May and it's the season for football records and here at 15 Manchester United and we're gonna do it again what comes second surely not welcome to the old traffic show some say it's better the devils you know coming at you from the top of the tree scoring our way into victory here we go here we go so here we go here we go Mayo mentions that it's that time of year for football records and gets a dig in on the following team. Manchester United featuring striker and we're gonna do it again. Formed in Manchester in 1878, Newton Heath had little success in the charts for most of their career, even after a name change in 1902 as Manchester United. In fact, it wasn't until 1976 that they signed with Decca and released their debut single, Manchester United, which only got to number 50 in May of that month. After several lineup changes, their follow-up <laughs> single, Glory Glory Man United, got to number 13 for two weeks in 1983, and they followed that with We All Follow Man United in May of 1985. <laughs> When We Will Stand Together only got to number 93 in May of 1990 after more lineup changes, it looked like it was all over for the group. But they had a number 37 hit in June of 1993 with United We Love You. However, after teaming up with Status Quo in 1994, they went to number one for two weeks in May of that year with Come On You Reds. This is the follow-up in collaboration with a rapper called Striker, who I absolutely know fuck all about. And it's a new entry this week at number 15. Manchester United, they're like rappers, just banging on about themselves all the time and how great they are. <laughs> Most unseemly. Yeah, terrible. Um, I'm... Just for a bit of perspective, Mayo says, you know, what they're going to do again come second. Uh, the previous night, they'd beaten Southampton 2-1, uh, ensuring that the league would go down to the last game of the season. 
So yeah, Simon Mayo though. There's no. It's like there's no better way to fit in with the lads in 1995 than to make a Man United joke. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. It's like he should have he should have said none of their fans come from Manchester. That would have been a good one. Also, yeah. uh, Wimbledon play uh, long ball and Chelsea have all got, got all foreign players. There you go. Top bands. Yeah. Proto <laughs> <Yes>. bands. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was probably an inauspicious time, really, for Man United to be releasing a sort of slightly hubristic... Uh, record and you know, and there's certainly definitely a large dollop of hubris on on this particular what? platter. But um, it's their FA Cup single, isn't it? it? Was, if I'm right, it was the time when Eric Cantona had that prolonged period out of the team, wouldn't it? Following yes. the Crystal, yeah, the assault on the old Crystal Palace yes. fan. Yes, that beautiful, beautiful assault. You know, he was talismanic for them, and so um, you know, yeah, they they lost the league, and then of course, you know, they did indeed. Ultimately, they did not do it again. No, against Everton in, in in the following May. We're going to do it again by Man United or altogether now by Everton. Mm, it's one of those Hitler-Stalin ones, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Um, but, but you know, at least this wasn't a cover of the Farm. But on the other hand, at least the other record didn't have Striker on it, who yeah. it has to be said brings a whole new meaning to the word whack. Um, yes, it's like if you watching this as a as a Manchester United fan, you'd have heard Striker and thought, "Fucking hell, man, you're letting the side down here." But the truth mm. is that you also think that when you watch this as a human, it's like, "Fuck's <laughs> sake, do you have to do this?" It's bad enough as yeah, it it's is. It's no Anfield rap, is it? Um, <laughs> no, I mean obviously this record is not for G's and b-boys no. and it's not even for most man united fans it's entirely for the kids in gloucester with old trafford bedspreads which is why it sounds mm-hmm. like the tween is but mm-hmm. still you know it wasn't it wasn't necessary for this record to be this bad right you couldn't no. walk down whitworth street in the 90s without bumping into a rapper and they were mostly bad but they weren't this fucking bad you know mm. um but it's so you end up with this bottle blonde scarecrow, and it's yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's the first sign of Manchester United's Achilles' heel, which is that as a corporate entity, it has no sense of style. Like on the pitch, they were always associated with flair and personality. You know, whatever, regardless of what any neutral might think of those personalities. But mm. this is a club's image been ground into the dirt by the powers that be. Um, it's like one minute it's a, a harmless shit pop record, uh, next minute you're selling the club to Scrooge McDuck, and <laughs> uh, you know appointing poisonous dinosaur managers and having an, an official air carrier which is Aeroflot, you know. But it's a, but these seem like innocent days now when Man United, yeah. you know, seem to people to be the most toxic presence in English football just because they were big. And they were run by breadheads, you know. It's like nowadays, Man yeah. United, Arsenal, Liverpool. I mean, they don't endear themselves to the neutral, but you know, you say, well, at least they, at least they attained their status by being football teams, you know, and winning football matches. Yeah, but, but this this period, obviously, you know, there's a sort of cantonalness about this 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 whole thing, really, because he he, you know, they use a lot of him. Oh, he's kept well out of it, isn't he? He's, he's... 
He's having nothing to do with this shit. Yeah, absolutely. There's one sort of short clip of it as if it's having as if it's been explained to him, I think, by Steve Bruce, and he's looking on slightly kind of with with Gallic horror at the whole appallingness yeah, of it. And it's the got to be in this video for at least two seconds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, and it, it's really you know that what he did bring was a certain hauteur, a certain panache, and you know all, all qualities conspicuously lacking in this particular musical exercise. As a sort of mm. adjunct to this, I think it might have been around this time that and Andy or Andrew Coles, I think he tried to restart himself. I was yeah. also up to he, he did a version of the Gap Band's Outstanding. Yes, he did. And um, it wasn't. It wasn't. And he was supposed to, and I was supposed to interview him, but then at the last oh. minute the whole thing was pulled, and it was pretty much pulled because he just lost all enthusiasm for the project. I think, you know, it's, it's as if he'd sort of decided, look, this is just a waste of my time, a waste of the public's time, a waste of everybody's time. I can't really be Bless a party him. to push in this. And I think, why doesn't that happen more often? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So who do we see in the video? Well, this is it. Normally, football records, or prior to this, football records were usually sung by those beefy, Sweeney villain-type footballers who looked old yeah. beyond their years and who were so pissed they could barely stand up. and Yeah, in, in jumpers. Yeah, and they saw making this record the same way they saw doing 50 laps of the training pitch, you know. it's like yeah. just or opening the supermarket. Yeah, you do it and you forget it. Um, but yeah. this Man United side's got all those young lads in it, right? Like Lee Sharp and the class of 92 people. Uh, mm. They must have been boiling with embarrassment. You, their mates must have had a fucking field day. You know what I mean? Do we not see Mark Hughes getting particularly involved in this song? Well, he sort of does a funny face to camera, yeah. I think mm. it's Gary Pallister who's the most enthusiastic about this. Yeah. Pumping a fist in the air and all that sort of stuff. Somewhat ironically, I suspect. But yeah, you're right. There's almost no Cantona in this, is there? It's like they just... No. Er, Eric, do you want to... No! <laughs> that was it. That was the end of the matter. I think it was, yeah. it was it was better. Like I said, there's definitely something a bit unseemly about this record. It really was better in 1970 with Back Home. And I think that the, the, the squad conduct that song in an order spirit. Basically, they are under orders to do this and they're carrying it out as a professional duty as if they were singing the national anthem or something like that. And I think that anything sort of less than that is it, it, a bit embarrassing, really. And I think it's certainly on this, you certainly don't get the feeling it's been done in that spirit. It's all It's all wrong. Yeah, and the musk of status quo is all over it again, Ooh. isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. They sample again and again in the mm. chorus. What photos of Alex Ferguson does Rick Parfit have in his uh, in his drawer? I wonder. Mm. Mm. The other weird thing about this record is it's about sixty BPM. Mm. It's one of the slowest rap records I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, it's, it's very old school, isn't it? It's a yeah. bit run DMC yeah. pace. Yeah, yeah. Well, when it when it's that slow, you don't have to rap. You just have you can just shout. Yeah, I know. So have there been any good football songs? Because everyone says World in Motion, but I hate New Order, so that can fuck off. Well, in that case, no, there have never been any. No, I must say, Anfield rap. I. I, I I've got to hold my hands up. I do like it. It's not taken seriously. It sounds like hip-hop, and it sounds like a load of people having a laugh while they're doing a song, and it and it kind of works. I have to say, I have to say, yeah, I'm Phil Rupp. Do you, what about You Can't Win Them All by Brian Clough? Oh, well, yeah, there we go. I mean, obviously, your own, your own team songs. Must have a place your in your heart. Your own team songs. You, 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 you've always got to like them. Um, 
you know, we got the whole yeah. world in our hands, mate. Uh, that's that's a, that's a tune. I can't wait to do that on chart music. In it fact, will happen when that it? comes up on chart music, I'm just going to mute your microphones. I'm just going to bang on about how brilliant it is. I won't have a word said against it. <laughs> it's just going to be ten minutes of you singing. We all agree, Nottingham Forest are magic. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Definitely, but there, there was loads of Forest songs. There. There's a whole album of Forest songs of, of varying quality. Uh, Magic in Madrid, that's the one I, I suggest you go and listen to. Uh, with the local Radio Trent DJ, Chris Ashley, who hated Brian Clough and hated Forrest and was such a hate figure in Nottingham that when he he, he bet that Forrest wouldn't beat uh, Leeds in the uh, semi-final of the 1978 League Cup, and uh, he, he said, uh, if, if Forrest get through to the final, I will shave my head like a monk. And the entire Broadmarsh Centre was rammed out with people watching him do it. And he only he only took a few hairs off the top of his head, but he was dressed up as a monk and everyone told him to fuck off and laughed at him. So, you know, mission accomplished. But he did a song and it is it is quite, quite spectacular. I think on balance, my favourite football record is You Know We're Gonna Win by Bradford City which is understated, <laughs> but uh, worth a listen. <laughs> yeah. It's just the, the, the sheer blankness of the mass vocal delivery is, is a bit special. <laughs> um, it goes, Bradford City, you know we're going to win. And then music stops and then they go, I never give in. <laughs> yeah, it's magnificent. It's like they sound like they've already given. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of one Arsenal Hot song. Stuff. Oh, no. Hot stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I can't. I can't muster oh. even like the kind of the irony to kind of um, have any any of these records. I just 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 don't hold with them. I'd have to say back home, really. And I think that probably, yeah. you know, and it should have that should have been the the first and the last in the genre. The great thing about Back Home was they weren't singing about them and how great they were and how they were going to win. They were singing about us. Yeah. You know, oh, they'll be be cheering us on and watching us. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. You know, really low expectations. That's what you need in a song, in a football song, isn't it? We all give all we've got. So you don't make a knob of yourself when you lose. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, the following week, we're going to do it again. Jumped nine places to number six its highest position, but they were pipped to the post by Blackburn Rovers in the league and then lost 1-0 to Everton in the FA Cup final. However, they spanked the Toffees in the charts because their cover of the Farms altogether now only got to number 24. The follow-up, Move, 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 The Red Tribe, got to number six for two weeks in May of 1996 and then have one more hit in May of 1999 when Lift It High, All About Belief, got to number 11. In a Channel 4 documentary about football songs a few years later, Stryker revealed that he was actually an Arsenal supporter. Yes. There you go, industrial sabotage. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it really is, isn't it? He's the enemy within. (laughs) Get right behind us and keep it up. We'll leave you with a message menu for the cops. It's Manchester United with Stryker on vocals and Eric Cantona on your solar plexus. 
And now at number six, it's a new entry. Here comes Mr. Scatman John. I'm the Scatman. Born in California in 1942, John Larkin suffered from a severe stutter as a child, which drove him towards music therapy and learning to play the piano. He became a professional jazz pianist in the 70s, incorporated scat singing into his repertoire and released a solo LP in 1986. After moving to Berlin in 1990, he picked up a Danish agent who suggested he should try some dance-orientated songs. After his wife suggested that he should talk about his experiences in overcoming his stutter, he changed his name to Scatman John and put out his debut single in November of 1994. Five months later, and here it is in the charts, this week's highest new entry at number six. And Taylor, this is it now, isn't it? The the, the lie about Britpop turning everything round has been properly exposed by this bloke. Yeah, I'd rather have this bloke, to be honest. I'm, yeah, I'm, I've been looking into options for my middle-aged image. Um, this is very interesting. <laughs> yes. and the thing is, I remember, I remember Scatman being a sort mm. of genial, avuncular figure, uh, and it's a bit. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. One hundred percent online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's weird to see him now and realize he was actually this slightly unsalubrious Austrian porn director dressed up for the awards <laughs> ceremony, you know. I mean, yes. he, he, the funny thing is, if you asked me to picture... The kind of person who would be into scat. <laughs> yes, more or less what would appear in my head. He's a d- deeply seedy air, um, and that sort of suggestion that ten years previously you wouldn't have wanted to get on the wrong side of him, you know. Um, mm. But in fact, when you read his interviews, he's not like that at all. He's uh, he's really fucked up from his stutter. Seems yes. to have destroyed his life right up until mm. this moment where he suddenly. Uh, 
you know, went from the ugly duckling to the swan. It's quite sweet. And uh, like all solo artists of the era, Scatman's got backup dancers, but they're not the live gymnastic uh, dancers we're used to on Top of the Pops. They they look like a sales team doing a review in the office for Red Nose Day, don't they? Mm. <laughs> They're really overdoing this particular trope, as you say, in this episode of the sort of yeah. backing dancers, and it doesn't, you know, with this particular one, it, you know, maybe it's the sort of bit of legs and curl, whatever, that's still in the sort of DNA of the show, and you got to, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, yeah, you know, there's no particular need for them on this this occasion. I would have liked to have seen legs and co's literal interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> Six girls, one cup. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say that. Yeah, you knew, you knew it was coming. But the song—I mean, this song got on my absolute tits round about this time. Well, I can see that. I can yeah. see that. Yeah, it's funny. The Melody Maker in the Melody Maker offices at the time, Everett True, for some reason, took a great shine to this record, and he'd um, be sort of scatting constantly all, all day long you know and he'd introduce scat motifs you know gratuitously into his uh, you know his, his, his pieces and his, his features or whatever he, he, he was deeply taken with it he, he found it very infectious that's my main memory oh. of this is actually you know that, that um, it had such a deep impact on Everett True did you stab him at any point? No, no, no. Just sort of. oh, I mean, the I'll thing go. at this point is I had to sort of zone out what was happening in the office. I was sitting next to Marcia, who just blasted out Capital Radio all day long, unapologetically. Mm. So the only respite we'd get is um, sort of some point in mid-morning, whatever, when she and her friends would disappear and uh, watch Jerry Springer for an hour. Um, oh, the rest of the time. So I just I used to love of, Jerry Springer. She, she was absolutely fine. Hear her kind of peeling guffles come out of the telly room while she was watching it. Um <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think I actually had to kind of zone out a great deal at that point, and I learned the art of zoning out. Yeah, because you know we're going on about oh here's hip hop and oh here's Brit pop, but there's a lot of dancey techno rubbish mm. still going on, isn't there? Mm. I mean, this song could have been done at any time between 1988 and mm. 1999. Yeah. I like the actual scat. I mean, I think it's a lovely backstory, but it's attached to an yeah. absolutely terrible sort of vehicle. This is a sort of joke record, mm. but there is a sense in which he's cool. I'm sorry, there is. Mm. Uh, and when you look at what this actually is, it's amazing that it's this enjoyable because mm. even though there's some Euro pop coming up that makes this look like the crap it sort of is, I quite mm. like this just for that gorgeous Euro beat neon wistfulness in the background, you know. Mm. Um, I mean, you know this won an award as the best rock and pop single of 1995. But in yeah. in Germany, yeah, it was oh, the, well, yeah. the German <laughs> version of the more. German version of the Brit Awards. God bless them, right? If there wasn't <laughs> that, if there wasn't that side to Germany, um, there wouldn't have been the other side. You know, you, we would never have had Krautrock. <laughs> it would have been as tasteful and sterile as Italian or French pop culture. Um, mm. So I say, God bless them. But the terrible thing is. He only had about four years to live at this point. Yeah. And you look into his eyes and you can almost see it. He's got that tired, broken look in his eyes that people get when they're just beginning their descent, you know. Or Mm. that might just have been because he'd been up all night with three models and eight grams of Coke. I don't know. Because, you know, (laughs) the thing about middle-aged people getting out of their head is that you can still do it, but you look fucking awful, right? Yeah. It's like when you're 23, you could get completely out of your face and you look exactly the same, except your eyes are a bit pink. 
Um, but you know, a middle-aged man who's been up all night caning it, you, you know, you you look like Edarem or whatever he's called. Have you ever seen him? He's, I shouldn't laugh because yeah. he is a sex offender, but he was that guy who went on. He was like he was a, a an aged sex offender who, when he got out of prison, put a load of videos of himself on YouTube miming creepily to pop records. If you <laughs> if you go to YouTube and put his uh, E D A R E M, his version of Pretty Woman is uh, once seen, never forgotten. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I you know I got a bit of sympathy for for Scatman. You know, getting this this uh, sort of golden sunset to his life. You know, good for mm. him. Especially as when you read the interview with him, and he says, "We stutterers have experienced what black people have experienced." So, you know, at least he was keeping it in perspective. <laughs> and where are you when this is going on, Taylor? Do you remember seeing it? Oh. <sighs> No, I, I, I just was at the back. You know, I had my back against oh. the back wall of the studio because you know I didn't want to didn't want to look like a, some sort of paedophile. You know. So the following week, Scatman nudged up to number four and would eventually get to number three. One of the few singles that's actually gone up from this performance at Top of the Pops. The follow-up, Scatman's World, got to number ten in September of this year. His last bit of chart action, and alas, Scatman John collapsed on stage in Cleveland in November of 1999 and died a few weeks later. Where's Scatman? time for our first exclusive tonight and they're playing totally unplugged yes they are welcome into your heart the blessed union of souls and i believe yes walk blindly to the light and reach out for his hand don't ask any questions and don't try to understand. Mayo introduces the first exclusive of the night who are playing Totally Unplugged, which was quite the thing at the time, thanks to MTV, even though they're not. It's I Believe by Blessed Union of Souls. Formed in Cincinnati in 1990 and named after an episode of MASH, Blessed Union of Souls were an alternative rock band who signed with EMI in 1992. This is a first single from their debut LP, Home, and is currently in the American Top 10, but hasn't been released here yet. So why the fuck are they on? Why? It's just, Who are I, they? I hate these kind of, uh, it's a bit like that kind of human thing recently. You know, every now and again, pop has had this kind of, pious moments of just sort of earnest soulfulness and, and what have you. And uh, in a funny kind of way, this faintly reminded me mm. of all things when Barbara Dixon came on on the two Ronnies, you know, there was a, <laughs> we had to have a mandatory pause from all the kind of malapropisms and puns about, you know, la rude remarks in Paris and all that kind of stuff. And Elkie <laughs> uh, Brooks yeah, with all their looks. Yeah, and all these kind of grotesque sentiments about love and how love will find a way and love will kind of provide the answer. And, Love doesn't do any of those things. You know, love is you know, it's rubbish. No, stuff. It's, love's pretty shit at that, isn't it? It is love is crap at stuff like that. It doesn't do those things at all. It's just this pious, vacuous nonsense. Um, 
And it's, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, then it goes on a little bit and it turns out that there's a bit of a kind of Brother Louis vibe to the whole thing, you know. It's mm. like she's going out with, he's going out with Lisa and uh, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Lisa's and, dad is well Brexit. Yeah. Thanks to love, you know, perhaps his dad will stop being, you know, her dad will stop being such a racist. But, uh, mm. yeah. Oh, and it's just this unplugged thing. And, of course, it was huge at the time. And, again, it's that kind of obsession you know this fixation on authenticity and like with the end of the organic the real whatever mm. and you know and this sort of antithesis towards you know in the increased mechanization production of popular music and it, yeah. it's just crap yeah you can really hear the song man mm. yeah 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 fuck yeah. off <laughs> pay your fucking electricity bill you'd never guess that they were a christian band would you I no, mean, not at just, all. They don't even mention Jesus, but it's just fucking obvious right from the start. It's well, this, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious because of the keyboard player's show. Have you seen that? Yes. It's got a bloody massive Jesus on it. And this churchiness is, it's like poison to British sensibilities. You know what I mean? Mm. That's the one thing that does make me proud to be British, right? Any other country in the world, a significant portion of the public will see this and even if they don't like it they'll feel they have to respect the sincerity of the message mm. and the earnestness of the performance right yeah at least in britain it's just an instant unanimous fuck off you creepy cunts right? <laughs> to the point where mm. even simon mayo is slightly taking the piss in the introduction yeah and he's a bloody christian it's, yeah and this is what i don't like about the x factor right like normally i don't give a shit about the X Factor, it's a talent show, you know, whatever. But what I can't forgive them for is normalising this American style of schmaltz, you know what I mean? It's had a terrible effect on British culture. Um, mm. That This sort of stuff now seems totally, totally normal and acceptable. But I tell you what, I do like how you get halfway through this stupid song and it's slimy and cringing and knock-kneed and, and whiny and feeble. And then suddenly this N-bomb goes up. Yes! Completely mm. unexpectedly. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's like, what the fuck? And American yeah. radio banned this, of course, but it must... Blessed Union of Souls must have been really pleased to arrive in England to yeah. find that nobody gives a shit. <laughs> you yeah. say what you like, mate. I say it all the time. And worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they probably probably got the taxi from Heathrow and probably heard it about eight times from the driver before they, before he realised who was in the band. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, according to the song, we're selling drugs to children. Um, well, keep me out of that, mate. I'm just making wank mags here, and uh, we're <laughs> we're eliminating our future with the things we do today. Yeah, well, they certainly were. <laughs> But yeah, he, you know, he, he he dropped the M bomb. So I mean, all this whinging's basically because all oh, my girlfriend's dad doesn't like me. Well, fucking deal with it. Be proud of it. <laughs> you know, you, you, your girlfriend's dad's supposed to hate you. You're nobbing his daughter. I wonder what they're even doing. I've never heard of these people. No. I just wonder if they perhaps you know were they brought on perhaps at Simon Mayo's behest? You know, is he kind of smuggled them in? I have no doubt. They're, just... they're so obsessed with getting exclusives that they'll take any old fucker on. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, if I went yeah. on, if I went on banging a saucepan and howling, that would be an exclusive because I've not I've not done mm. that before ever anywhere. Put me on mm. top of the pops. Yeah, it's the mm. way it comes up and says exclusive in big yeah, letters. Yeah, massive like, letters. Yeah. Eat shit, MTV. Yeah. We've got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but this is a fucking terrible record. It and is, it, isn't it? It is the corrosive effect of religion. And apologies again to the good egg believers that I know. But unless you're making gospel music, there has mm. to be the same 
wall of separation between the church and pop as between the church and the state because pop music pop music needs an empty sky to be mm. silhouetted against because pop music in a godly world is like having your parents sitting in the kitchen at your 18th birthday party mm. yeah it's like in a universe with a purpose pop music is a waste of time in a way i think that football songs are actually more appropriate marginally than religious yes. songs basically so two weeks later i believe entered the uk charts at number 36 and would eventually get to number 29 the follow-up let me be the one only got to number 74 in March of 1996, and they were done here. But I believe was the fourth most played single on American radio in 1995. Mm. Fucking hell, America, what are you like? <laughs> 10 million Ned Flanders is. Blessed Union of Souls, which reminds me, Confessions, BBC One, Saturday night, 7.05, five past seven, thanks very much. Now a new entry at 23 from Shed 7, it's Bob Geldof's favourite, Where Have You Been Tonight? gets a plug-in for his TV show before getting in a dig at Bob Geldof about his impending divorce from Paula Yates as he introduces Shed 7 and Where Have You Been Tonight. Formed in York in 1990 from the ashes of Broccoli Haven, Shed 7 was signed by Polydor in 1993 and released their first single, Mark, in March of 1994, which got to number 80. They'd go on to have three top 40 hits later that year and release their debut LP, Change Giver, in September. This is their first single of 1995 and the follow-up to Ocean Pie, which got to number 33 in November of 1994, and it's a new entry this week at number 23. Just one question, chaps. Shed 7, the whipping boys of Britpop. Explain why. Because to me, they're just another whitey boy band with the guitars and that. Yeah, but you're a, you're a, a pure hip-hop lad, you see. The point is, if you exist in this world, it's like the, you know, if you, if you live in the in the hollowed-out tree stump and just look at the same patch of sky, you find infinite variation <laughs> in that movement of clouds. Um, well, before you say anything, I, I'll let you collect your thoughts. I'm going to read a review of their single On Standby, written by Neil Kulkarni in Melody Maker magazine. <clears throat> In York, there's a nightclub up Micklegate called Ziggy's, which I used to frequent of a Tuesday night. One night, people were pointing and crowding this rather simian chap at the bar whose lolling and overtly large head made him look like an orange on a toothpick. <laughs> I ambled over for a drink and found myself standing next to him, and notwithstanding the attention he was receiving, he smelt like an incontinent tramp. <laughs> Stank, in fact. I had to back away, the stench was that bad. He's now a minor star, while I sadly share this anecdote whenever I hear his band's dreadful music and smile with a purient glow of misplaced satisfaction. But at least I don't smell like a festival toilet. That, I feel, is a victory. 
Why the haze? I mean, enemy. I mean, one of the best. We talked about enemy earlier on, and um, one of the best headlines they ever came up with was um, "You can't get thicker than a shit Rick Witter." Um, <laughs> and I think they actually contrived the story just to fit the headline. Actually, it was very much mm. of a nun story when you read it, and what it was doing dominating half a page of the enemy newspaper. Not quite <laughs> sure. I just think that it was the headline, then, and for then Rick Witter to say or do something remotely kind of fatuous. I don't know. There, there was just something eminently whippable and punctual about them. But I mean, this is this is a dreadful, dreadful piece of music. I mean, it's just inexcusable. Mm. It's it's got a faintly kind of sub Smiths thing going on. You can sense that they're the kind. You know, this is well, it's the sort of rotten outcrop of it. It's like eating jeans. It's like <laughs> it's landfill before there was land to be filled. I mean, it's just almost like an inauguration of like you know this sort of, 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 of the long perma sort of winter of um, indie shy you know it's it's trudging predictably you know from one change to the other it's what what kind of people listen to this you know people who hate surprises i mean what you know <laughs> I, I don't I, I absolutely don't get it at all i mean yeah i'm i'm now becoming red with rage in fact just thinking about it and i'll tell you the worst thing of all i used to get sent a hundred singles every week and 90 of them were just like this but significantly worse mm-hmm. And that's how bands like this get successful. They're the best-smelling pigs in the pigsty, you know. (laughs) But it's like, compared to normal music, it's fucking appalling. It's like, I mean, it's like they heard the Smiths and no other music ever and thought, well, let's do this, but gormlessly and on a much, much lower level. And it won't achieve anything. It will just be effectively a chimney-pumping filth into the atmosphere. Mm. But... Uh, it'll get us on the stage and we can get some, you know, we can con some drunk first-year student girls into thinking we're impressive enough to fuck. I mean, 30 years <laughs> prior to this, there were hundreds of bands like that, millions of bands like that, you know, like local groups and stuff. But they were forced to play so much uh, in dance halls for audiences who wanted to to dance or have a rave. Those bands were forced to be exciting even if they couldn't be original. Whereas this is not the case when you're playing indie clubs to undiscriminating, way-faced teens, you know, standing there with no facial expressions, swaying vaguely from side to side, clinging onto a plastic beaker of cider. You know, you can just get on the stage and make a pathetic exhibition of yourself like this and get away with it. Not just get away with it, get a top 30 hit. You know, it's awful. You look at him with these... Britpop singer's stagecraft, which is like walk two steps backwards, then walk two steps forwards, repeat. And he's like rolling his eyes back into his giant head, like, you know, like a faked orgasm. It's like, what? This bloke thought he could be a rock star. It's so weird. It's just like an idiot doing what he thinks you should do, you know. Uh, Was there anyone at Melody Maker who actually liked Shed 7? Yeah, it was probably... Probably, yeah, because, you know, there are always a few dullards hanging around. But um, I, no, no one that I socialise with, that's for damn sure. <laughs> See, what I, one thing I really object to about this record as well is something that I always hated in these kind of songs, that these horrible, looming, long notes, right? Like it's a bit gothy on the quiet, right? Like it's, there's a whole subgenre of trash indie rock from the 90s that's like this, right? Like Strange Love. Uh, and the long pigs and people like that. It's just genuinely worthless music um, because it pushes out the only thing which could ever have saved it, which is the inherent trashiness. 
uh, and it replaces that with this sort of dreadful failed seriousness because that's easier you see if you're not very talented easier than generating excitement is to hit a minor chord and let it ring and base the song all around semitone intervals and try to create some spurious atmosphere you know to cover mm. up for the for the lack of melodic invention uh, and originality I mean one question I've always wanted to know do you all get together and decide oh we don't like that band we're going to slag them off all the time or is it is it an organic hatred no it's purely organic because um the majority of people who end up doing that job are, are sort of discerning music fans. So, you know, mm. even within that horrible little world, you know, you can tell that Shed 7 are not as good as, you know, Oasis, right? It's like it's, Oasis did, you know, mm. three or four really great records and Shed 7 did this. And this was their best shot. They're the Lambrettas to Oasis's jam, if you will. Yeah, it's a, a fitting tribute. It must have been really galling to have to keep writing about this bands like this, because obviously someone was still buying their records. I mean, did you get a lot of hate mail for uh, for slagging them off? Not for slagging off Shed Seven particularly, but no. Yeah, but generally, the thing is, if you were on a music paper during Britpop, and uh, the music paper had sort of nailed by this point both music papers had nailed themselves to the indie mast, so you couldn't get away from it. Mm. What you had to do, if you weren't that into these groups, um, you had to find what other music uh, you could get away with writing about, because there'd always be a couple of token features about something else, you know, like hip-hop mm. or avant-garde music or, or something. Um, and then find out which Britpop groups you did quite like and write about them, like Supergrass or, you know, Boo Radleys. Uh, and then the other Britpop groups you would slag off as much as you as you could, you know. Um, but you, ha- you still had to write about them because otherwise you weren't going to eat. Right. Because unlike David, the rest of us were freelancers and uh, being paid by the word. So you had to hustle, right? You had to hustle for work. And it was like, do you want to go and review uh, Shed 7 at the Sheffield Lead Mill? And you kind of had to say yes. But but yeah. the nice thing about Melody Maker is at least when you got back, you were allowed to be honest about what you'd seen. Because in your article with uh, Supergrass, you do make mention of uh, Shed 7 drifting over to your table while you're doing the interview. Um, d- did they recognise you? I mean, they must have done. Well, they didn't, re- didn't recognise me. Um, I'm, but no, I'm pretty sure they recognised Supergrass. You've got to understand the, the, the affected contempt it was, it, it, that bands had for music mm. journalists at that point, right? Despite the fact that you're talking about bands that, if it hadn't been for the music press, would effectively not exist. Yeah. You know, would never have got anywhere. Yeah. Um, they felt that they had to see the music press as parasites and and you know bastards and stuff, um, or else they weren't cool. The general impression I got as a reader of the music press is that you were all in it together and having a, such a wonderful time. Is that are you telling me that's not the case at all? We certainly weren't in it together because uh, no 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 bands didn't uh, didn't want you around ever you know. I remember right. I remember sitting in a hotel bar once with menswear, right? Who menswear, God bless them, knew exactly what they were and were quite happy to socialise with journalists because 
you know. Yeah. They were sound lads when it all came down to it and they were having a bit of a laugh. Um, yeah. I was sat in a hotel bar about three in the morning. And menswear's fucking roadie that they'd hired from some agency came over and sat down. He was like, oh, you're a journalist, are you? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, all right, what's the next scoop then? And it's like, as if you work for the <laughs> for the Daily Star or something. It's like, yeah. what? Just being really aggressive and overbearing. Yeah. So you're being looked down upon by a fucking roader. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of menswear. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's like... Fucking hell. So the following week, where have you been tonight? Dropped 22 places to number 45. But the follow-up, getting better, would get to number 14 in January of 1996. And they go on to have five top 20 hits that year. Jesus. After Diminishing Returns set in, they split up for the first time in 2003. So Saturday BBC One, not just Confessions, not just the National Lottery, but also the Eurovision Song Contest. And without a bing, a bang, or a bong anywhere in sight, we wish them all the best. This is the Love City Groove. Formed in Manchester by the producer Stephen Beans Rudden in 1993, Love City Groove were a loose collective of songwriters whose first single was scheduled to be released in late 1994 until it was chanced upon by Jonathan King at the BBC. King had approached David Liderman earlier this year and offered his services as producer for Top of the Pops, but was offered the task of landing Great Britain its first Eurovision Song Contest winner since 1981. After deciding that the tunes were more important than the performers, King got in touch with Rudden and advised him to hold back the tune for the Song for Europe, where it absolutely hammered the competition, including London Beat and Samantha Fox. Upon entering the chart in early April, it peaked at number 12, dropped down to number 17, but then nudged up one place this week to number 16, just in time for this year's Eurovision, which is due to be held in Dublin two days from tonight. That's a bit suspicious, isn't it? It suddenly nudged up in the charts just before, you know, it was going to be on the Eurovision Song Contest and 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 allowed to be on top of the pops. Mm. Just saying... Absolutely, you know, I think we're, yeah. you know, we're not averse to the odd conspiracy theory, but uh, yeah, yes, definitely. Yeah, uh, Taylor, I mean, I've got to ask. I haven't we, we haven't really asked you about your experience uh, on on the set of Top of the Pops. Um, when we're watching it, it's a seamless transition from one band to the other. Um, is it like that in real life? Uh, I think they've quickened it up a bit by this point, um, yeah. because they don't, they no longer have to use the top of the pops applause wash that you get on the 70s and 80s ones right Mm. you can always tell when there's been a slow transition between bands in the old days because you hear that recording of an audience uh, (laughs) cheering and clapping which is not the audience in the studio which which they put on as a wash as they fade to you know Kid Jensen standing next to uh, some awkward looking underage girls yeah Um, that wash is always weird 
isn't it? Because you can always hear just one bloke who's just been a bit too excitable and just goes, Ooh! and you hear yeah. that all the time. When you when you tune your ear to it, like like we've done uh, as connoisseurs of Top of the Pops, you, you can't not hear it, can you? Yeah, once heard, it, 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 you can't miss it. Um, I don't know what happened by this point. Maybe the tape had snapped, but yeah, they, uh, yeah, that this is no longer there. As I recall, it was. Uh, it was fairly slick, but what you don't see, of course, is the 45 seconds of silence with people in earphones, with clipboards, shouting at children <laughs> and shooing them into a different corner of the studio. But, I mean, how, um, many, how many people are, are actually there, are actually being employed to uh, to, to herd, herd the, the, the kids? Um, it's not that many. Um, it's just because they just assume that people are going to respond to the sight of somebody uh, with a clipboard and earphones and uh, and a bloke in a camera shouting, you know, get out of the way or you're going to be decapitated because I'm mm. rolling towards you. Um, yeah, it's it, it's it's slicker than it used to be. But yeah, um, yeah there's always, you know, the, obviously they, they tidy it up with TV magic. Yes. I must admit, the first time I ever experienced anything like this was in 1975 when I was 12. My school, St Michael's and Leeds, uh, were entered <laughs> the top of the form and we all got coached down to London. And, and I remember, you know, the, the, during the recording at the beginning, for the applause, you know, I thought, you know, it's a pretty straightforward thing to applaud, but no, they insisted on having a sort of OC, a chap in the corner who would like to hold up a big couple of times saying applause and then he'd kind of like keep raising his hands, keep going, keep going, keep coming and stop. Yeah. And it was such a disillusioning moment that actually, you know, to realise that, you know, the, the, the artifice, that TV is a lie, you know, I think that stuck with me actually. The thing that's always uh, funny is on comedy shows where at the start they say, well, we're just going to test the mics. Yes. We're just going to check what you sound like. Let's have a really big laugh. And everyone does a... a <laughs> Big fake laugh, and it's like they don't realise this is being recorded and stored in case it's required a, a bit later. Is there an equivalent of a warm-up man on top of the pops? Not that I recall. I think no. it's just uh, the the idea of being in the same hangar-like room as uh, your pop favourites and Celine Dion is just considered to be, you know, yeah. just enough of a warm-up in itself. Yeah. So anyway, let us turn to Love City Groove, who, um, to my mind, are pretty much the black-eyed, mushy peas, aren't they? <laughs> yes. By this time, we, we, we're we starting to get a bit ragged about Eurovision, aren't we? Um, you know, for many years, we used to look down our noses at our, at our Euro chums, and now... We seem to be getting quite offended that we're not winning every year. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a, a sense of that. That um, you know, that we, why aren't we winning that every we could, year? You know, the idea is in the six and seventies, Britain was so great we could send out Sandy Shaw, Lulu, or Cliff Richard and still knock spots mm. off these Euros. You know, with like you know, yeah. Bucks Fears and Brotherhood of Man. But now, yeah, it's all kind of getting shunted. You know, we're getting shunted to one side, and um, um, it, it's you know, and I think this is almost a real attempt to kind of reassert. Um, yeah. Just look, you know, we, we are the country now, soul to soul, and Nana Cherry. We've got a groove going here, you know, that not, mm. you know, that like, you know, puts your kind of like sort of overheated power ballads into, you know, not into a cot <laughs> hat. Um, but I don't think they really kind of understand. I mean, I think that ultimately Eurovision is it, it's a schlager thing, you know, which is a schlager, the yeah. German thing, which essentially means pop music, but it's a certain kind of pop music that's very European and has its own sort of rules and protocols. And 
it isn't really anything to do, you know, and it doesn't, Britain's never really been a kind of a part of that. You know, Britain is kind of an island apart when it comes to this kind of schlager thing. It doesn't really mm. understand it. It doesn't understand it's kind of, you know, and, and also I think by the mid-90s, you know, you're going to get a bit more, you know, there's a bit more infighting in Europe and stuff like that, a bit of like, you know, sort of disturbance in the Balkans and what have you. And yeah. I think this is the beginning of the end, you know, that, you know, you think, right, we're going to put out all the stops here, we're going to sort of like, you know, and it does feel like that, they're going to sort of crowd 20 or 30 people on stage, you know, we're going to sort of funk it up and down, and they come 10th, don't they, you know, and it's, 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 it's yes. yeah, the game's up at this point, really. Yeah, I mean, you say, I, I agree with what you're saying, David, but, you know, Ireland, uh, uh, geographically, even further away from Europe, and they, they're caning it in this decade, aren't yeah. they, in Eurovision? Well, they get the, yeah, they get something, yeah, yeah. What's that all about then? Maybe, I don't know, maybe they're sort of slightly more kind of canny and they're slightly more sort of playing by the rules and observing it. But, um, yeah, it's, um, I don't know, yeah, maybe it's just that. Maybe it's a sort of more of a sense of modesty. Maybe there's a kind of slightly kind of imperial pop sense about Britain that, you know, that we are so good um, mm. that, um, you know, that... that, that, that um, Sorry, because it, completely there. It's, it's all right. <laughs> it's not like we, we're, we're putting out really shitty songs. I mean, it was... Uh, the previous year was um, uh, Francis Ruffell, mm. which wasn't that bad. It was a decent enough song, mm. um, but it, it didn't do anything. Yeah. Taylor, your thoughts? Yeah, on, on a subject that must have, uh, you know, resonated around the Melody Maker offices at the time. Why? Why are we not caning it in Eurovision? People forget now, but there was a lot of pro-European feeling in Britain in the 90s, mm. right? It was like we were we were out of those years of being insular and you know waving our little union jacks, and now we were uh, we were a, a modern European nation, mm. and it's easy to forget. Um, and I think that's why people thought the Eurovision Song Contest was worth taking a bit more seriously. But of course, that killed it because um, obviously the Eurovision Song Contest is ruined now yeah. for the same reason a lot of mainstream camp is ruined now because it's full of people who get the joke. Yeah. Um, and don't realise that spoils it. So you lose that fascinating, sort of unintentionally subversive thing of talentless and irredeemably tacky people doing their best and failing and creating something grotesque and bizarre in the process. Now you have equally tacky and talentless people giving you a wink and doing something self-consciously and almost whimsically shit. Um which means it can't be camp in the true sense of the word. It can only be silly and authentically bad. But this halfway house is much worse. It's like trying to make Eurovision as boring and unconvinced, unconvincingly trendy as youth TV or uh, or a fizzy drinks advert. So you get all the crapness and none of the weirdness. Um, like there's not even a... a a Croatian bloke with eagles flying out of his ass, you know. It's like the it's also cynical, and it's worse than that. It's cynical and half-assed. But it's a but it's, it was an inevitable nineties thing because we were all cool now, right? See, we were everybody was everybody was cool, so everything had to be proper. Uh, and knowing no more of that, yeah, no more of that old world cheesiness, you know. And of course, nothing is less interesting than 
untalented people trying to be cool. Yeah. You know, like no hopers keeping a straight face and keeping it real. Yeah. Fucking purgatory. This, this is part of the offensive conceitedness of this, this, this particular thing. This is a very mediocre song, but it's almost like when David Brent, you know, um, quotes bits, chunks of Forty Towers and Two Ronnies and thinks that he's being kind of like funny in his own right by osmosis or by association because it's British comedy. You know, they're, they're trying to sort of like get that kind of soul-to-soul thing going, or get that Nanny Cherry thing going. But, you know, that's, that's soul-to-soul and Nanny Cherry. It's not this bunch of Herberts. No. Yeah, they're like a musical version of Poochie the Dog from The Simpsons. <laughs> and they, they look like him as well. <laughs> yes, yes. Recycled to the extreme. <laughs> also, this is, uh, this is a bit of a rip-off of um, Love Town. By oh yes, uh, uh, Booker Newbury yes. which I might not have noticed if they hadn't put the words "Love City" in the fucking title. Yeah, it's not covering your tracks. Is it? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and again and again, the subject matter is you know it's not your standard. I, I can't imagine Cliff singing uh, lyrics like you know we're really making love now. Thank fuck, but you know yeah, why why why, the they, Euros, yeah, why are they sexing it up? There's no need for well, it. The, mm. They're very relaxed about this sort of thing on the continent. Yeah, mm. true. As we're trying to trying to get with them, but yeah, this is you can sort of. There's a faint odor of Jonathan King left on this. <laughs> uh, not that it sounds like one of his records, no. but it has that sort of uh, you know calculated feel to it. There's there's some Brit school mm. contamination as yes. well. Um, I think it's the bloke in the horribly clashing check shirt and tartan truth. Mm. Uh, that's where he comes from. Um, and the, 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 they edged out um, QT, right? The, the female British rapper QT who appeared on yeah. a couple of St. Etienne tracks uh, co-wrote this and was originally the female rapper on it. Right. Um, she's not on this. She's been replaced with this uh, um MC Reason, who's like a sort of proto Cardi B, like uh, overdoing the head wobbling and the facial expression. MC mm, Reason, tits, my you know. God. Yeah, yeah. DJ Rational. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the the yeah the the every time I hear Jonathan King, I always think of when I met this bloke who worked for his magazine, right? The Tip Sheet. You know, he used oh, to yeah. do the. Yeah, um, I was in Manchester doing something at some event a few years ago. This is when he was in jail, uh, and this bloke was talking to me, sort of about oh yeah, I work for Jonathan King's magazine and da, 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 da. yeah, all right. And I just made an offhand remark of you know, uh, it the prisons would be uh, even more overcrowded if all the people who did what Jonathan King did but were heterosexual were banged mm. up in jail, um, and. About two weeks later, I got an email from this bloke saying, I told Jonathan what you said, oh. and he wants you to write to him in prison. <laughs> I, have to, I have to say, faint odour of Jonathan King, you know, worst-selling male perfume ever. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it didn't go down well when I bought that me dad for Christmas <laughs> that year, let me tell you. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, again, again, hip-hop. Hip-hop is, is, is amongst us, but it's not... It's not the real deal, is it? It's homeopathic hip hop, isn't it? It's been diluted a trillion times. Yes, very much so. 
I think essentially overall is a non-threatening dose of blackness. Yeah. Anything else to say about this? Yeah. I love the ticker going across the bottom, by the way, that says... Uh, of course. Top of the Pops predicts top 40 entries for... And it's all yes. the people that are going to be in next week's chart. And it's yeah. like, like as if they were soothsayers or, you know... Yes, world Mystic Mag. I know. It's the last point in history where that naivety was assumed in the audience, right? That they'd never heard of the midweek charts. And yeah. it was like, yeah, how do they know this? <laughs> they must be amazing. So two days later, Love City Groove finished joint 10th with Malta in the Eurovision Song Contest, which was won by Secret Garden of Norway. However, the following week, it jumped up nine places to number seven, its highest position. After two singles which failed to chart in a flop LP, they split up in 1996. As for Jonathan King and Eurovision, the UK's next entry, Ooh Are oh, Just a Little Bit by Gina G, finished eighth in 1996. That's ridiculous. That's, that's perfect. Nailed on Eurovision winner, that is. But the next year, Katrina and the Waves won with Love Shine a Light. As King said in 2015, After that, I got caught up in the early stages of the false allegations industry and had to give up my position as boss of the UK Eurovision campaign. But I remain quite a hero amongst Eurovision fans, not least because of the head of the BBC at the time, Alan Yentob, had come very close to dropping the contest and it was my involvement and success that had kept the show alive. The BBC need me back to find us another winner. Sadly unlikely. Vile perverts, in capital letters, are not encouraged as employees by establishment media outlets, despite rumours to the contrary. <laughs> modest, modest as always. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Self-effacement to the last. <laughs> Canadian. She is a number one artist. She is exclusive to this show. There's only one road, but remember, there's only one Celine Dion. Looking back through the years down this highway, memories they only lead up to this one day. Born in Quebec in 1968, Celine Dion wrote and recorded her first song at the age of 12, which led to her being discovered by her manager, René Angelil. In 1981, her new manager remortgaged his house to fund her first album, and a year later she won the Yamaha World Popular Song Contest in Tokyo. But she first came to our attention in 1988, when she won the Eurovision Song Contest for Switzerland. She began the 90s with her first UK chart hit, a duet with Peebo Bryson on the theme tune to Beauty and the Beast, which got her to number 9 in May of 1992. But her first big solo hit was a cover of Jennifer Rush's The Power of Love, which got to number 4 in February of 1994, by which time she revealed that she was nobbing her manager. This is a follow-up to Think Twice, which stayed at number one for seven weeks in the spring of 1995 and is still in the chart at number 67. It's the fifth single from her LP, The Colour of My Love, and it's not been released yet. Oh, it's a special treat. And did you notice that Simon wasn't um, jibing and abantering when he was introducing this? This, to the minds 
of Top of the Pops is is the main event, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, she's in the studio there, so, you know, we don't, we're kind of effectively doing it to her face. Yeah, um, there's a lot of people pointedly not watching Emmerdale just for this performance, no, I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's obviously a little bit of kind of, you know, sucking up has to be done in that respect. It's difficult, yeah. I mean, like Shed 7... I mean, there is so much. They, they're kind of this kind of scrofulous sort of mass of a huge target. There's so much that you can kind of throw at them. They're kind of classic Aunt Sally's from a critical point of view. It's just like, <laughs> how do I hate thee? Let me count the ways. Mm. But with Celine Dion, she's this massive blank. It's, it's almost like she's so sort of evaporated that it's hard to actually get any kind of handle on, you know, why it's just awful. I mean, it, it, it's just this... She, she is she is white knee Houston, isn't she? Yes, yes, very good indeed. You know, it's this Thank you. barrage of MLR nothingness to live with this kind of nauseating competence, you know, these just these austere vocal gymnastics. It's, you know, again, it's kind of... I suppose it's for the kind of the vast numbers of people who go to musicals or whatever. This, this is the stuff, you know. Mm. Um... It's, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know, it's like Tory Vos or people like Andrew Lloyd Webber or whatever. We know they exist in their mm. millions, you know. It's just like you yeah. never, ever meet them. You never see them. I never come across them or intersect with them. No. Um, and I think they kind of don't really want to be kind of, you know, they, they kind of keep it to themselves that they are Tory voters, Andrew Lloyd Webber um, fans or Celine Dion fans as well. Um, yeah. You know, they, they subsist in their, you know, they exist in their millions, you know, like sort of a... Millions and millions of badgers, you know, in some sort of subterranean shame. It's, um, um, yeah, it's 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 bizarre. Taylor, were you enraptured in the very presence of Celine Dion? I think this might have been when I nipped out. <laughs> um, I like her, her look. I have to be honest. Yeah, I think it's a good a good retro lesbian image, like mm. Dua Lipa or someone. Right? It's like what. Justine out of Elastica was trying to look like she was like a version version of this that had just clambered out of a dustbin um, but I don't yeah there's that trouble with her singing I mean in fairness she's not terrible because she actually sings the tune yeah. instead of obscuring it with you know ugly pointless melismas like a modern singer mm. and she's got a set of pipes on her but it's like she's not a pure singer and she isn't raucous it's like this unconvincing mixture which just, and it sounds like an acting performance rather than a real performance. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, Elaine Page or something. Exactly, that, that intersection with like theatre and musicals or whatever. Yeah, that it's not, that, that like, yeah, it puts it to remove from kind of pop music and that kind of sort of direct sort of passion, whatever, that you'd hope for. Mm. Yeah. And you see the, the kids sort of desultory. Swaying. I mean, the swaying yeah. is like... It's, I mean, I got the impression that there's somebody holding up a cardboard sign saying, sway, sway, sway. And this is like... They're just thinking that this is what we, were, this is what we were bust in for, was this. No. No. It's terrible. I mean, it's, it's quite nice for me to see some of the female fashions of the day for tragically nostalgic reasons. Mm. But otherwise, it's a depressing sight. They look a bit stiff and glum. Um... And now I think about it, these will be the kids that I saw queuing up outside, looking bored and tired, you know. And now they're in the studio, and Top of the Pops is happening around them yeah. right now. And yet, in a sense, they're still hanging around waiting, you know. Although you can tell they're London kids. You can tell they're from London and, and Environ, because they're wearing the clothes of 1995. Um, and this is the something you, you often forget, that... 
I mean, I remember in 1995, I got sent up to, and I'm sorry for to residents of Wolvo who've heard me bash their town on at least two previous occasions, but I got sent up to Wolverhampton to review Black Grape in the late summer of 1995. And this was a point where we were all starting to get a little bit sick and tired of Britpop and everybody wearing those clothes and, you know. So I turned up at like Wolfram Hall or wherever it was, walked in, and the audience is a sea of dreadlocks, stripy tights, yeah. big DM boots, <sighs> and Cart of the Unstoppable Sex Machine t- oh, in like, you know, God. late August 95. And you think, no, but it's quite sobering. Yeah. You know, we, were, we were there trying to sort of push things on and uh it's like no it's still 1991 up here yeah um yeah that time it, and it's yeah it's it very easy to lose track of that when you're in the cauldron but but again i mean it does seem to me extraordinary that and i've been to other sort of recordings of tv shows or whatever and they're a grueling affair and sometimes people are sort of like locked in these hangers and actually made to stay in their seats for several hours it's grueling stuff and yet at the end of mm. it they managed to kind of give an air of, like, you know, manufactured enthusiasm. And, like, you know, when you actually view the programme and people actually look, you know, they, 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 you know they're kind of applauding euphorically or whatever. There's a lot of energy. But it almost it's a strange honesty about Top of the Pops is that, you know, the, you, you see these people kind of standing there and they look as sullen and as pissed off and as bored as you would expect, you know, after a sort of yeah. full day's recording. For some reason, they choose to preserve that on Top of the Pops, yeah. of all things. I always thought that was very strange. You know, I, I used to watch I... Top of the Pops and think, why are these people yeah. so sad? Isn't it funny? You know, this is a dream thing. They're on Top of the Pops. They're adjacent to Jimmy Savile. What is their problem? Is their teenagers. Yeah. That's their problem. Well, maybe it's that. Maybe <laughs> it's, it's a sheer yeah. kind of adolescent... Misery, kind of, you know, improving in, in indomitable even in the face of, um, you know, pop. But yeah, yeah. See, it, I think that what what Top of the Pops is trying to go for here is, you know, they want these 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 kids to be to be beholding this fantastic beast called Celine, mm. uh, who's who's you know emoting and you know singing properly and doing proper music. But mm. the, the overall effect you get is um, it's like the end of term assembly and miss yeah. has got a guitar out and she's going to do her version of um, Space Auditor. <laughs> the other effect and, it sometimes used to get when I watched it is that basically they're in the presence of such immense talents that they're mm. cowed and they're overcome by a sense of their own mediocrity and insignificance. Yes. Yeah. That too. I'll tell you what's weird though. People at the time uh, thought this was a throwback, right? This mm. record, it seemed... Seemed like a throwback. We were in this fab new world, and it was almost a shock yeah. that middle of the road stuff like this could still outsell everything else. But in fact, this is you, listen, you, you look at this now, and this is more like the future <laughs> mm. than any amount of Britpop or whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like people just people in the nineties were so proud of themselves for not being from the eighties. Yes, you know, uh, and that misplaced optimism. Um, and complacency, that's what they screwed us with in the end. It was just assumed that somehow everything was going to be all right. Uh, that's what opened the doors to the horrors of the present day. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's quite unpleasant to look back and think that to some small extent you're a part of that. Mm. So the following week, only one road entered the chart at number 11 and would eventually get to number 8. 
The follow-up to Mem Encore would get to number seven in September of this year, and she just wouldn't fuck off for the rest of the 90s. Inspired by a trip to Canvey Island, only one road, that's Celine Dion, and now the charts. As a new entry at number 10, you've already seen Supergrass doing Lenny. Number 9, Don't Stop, Wiggle Wiggle from the Out Here Brothers. 8, Bobby Brown, two can play that game. 7 is Tina Arena and her chains. New entry at number 6, you've seen Scatman John and Scatman. Number 5, Boyzone and Keita, my life. Number four, it's Take That and Back for Good. Three, Guaglioni signing for Rangers, Perez Prado and his orchestra. And down to number two, some might say Oasis. And for the first time ever, three consecutive number ones straight in at number one. And for now, live in joy our top of the pops. Mayo drops references to Canvey Island and Glasgow Rangers while running down the top ten. And I, I didn't get the Glasgow Rangers one, did you? I think it's just it's an Italian word and they were signing a lot of Italian yeah. players at the time. It's more of his uh, more of his footy bants, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Because, of course, you know, we're all interested in football all of a sudden, aren't yeah, we now? Simon Mayer. In, yeah. in the mid-90s. Hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 it's all part of the same thrust of things. Euro 90, Euro 96, Oasis, it's all, there's a kind of confluence mm. now. Gone are the days where John Peel got booed when he announced the football results at Reading Festival. <laughs> <laughs> and he introduces the third number one in a road to enter the charts right at the top, Dreamer by Living Joy. Formed in Italy by Paolo and Gianni Visnade, two brothers who had also formed Alex Parte, who had just had a number two hit with Don't Give Me Your Life, Living Joy were fronted by Janice Robinson, a singer-songwriter from New Jersey. Although Mayo claims that this is the third single in a row to go straight in at number one, he's failed to mention that this is actually a re-release, as it was a number 18 hit in August of 1994. I mean, many things to, to, to talk about here before we get to the band. I mean, the, the, the top 10 rundown is pretty much your only bit of video action in this episode, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's been this kind of strong sort of recurrent theme of like liveness and authenticity and, yeah, and videos are obviously yeah. part of the whole terrible artifice of pop. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 they're all pretty nondescript mm. videos. I think the only thing that I took away from it were Boyzone were all in flat caps trying to be, you know, um, r- r- rough and rural and Irish and everything, but they they, they just look like the Tetley Tea folk. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck Boyzone. <laughs> anyway, live in joy. The thing that's interesting to me is the fact that it, um, it's essentially it's a follow-on from, like, high energy. I mean, what strikes me about the 80s and... It's because we thought is how, you know, it's how, it's how gay, how queer, you know, as it were. The the, the charts are, you know, the num, you know, the the, the, the blatant, you know, whether it's everything from Man Parish to sort of Bronsky Beat, 
um, George Michael, whatever. I mean, it's you know the, the gayness of of nineteen eighties pop is is an absolute given. Everything, and then by the nineties, everything suddenly starts getting very laddish and hetero. And I think that's actually been the case ever since. Really, it's bizarre, you know, that like there's been this kind of thankfully upward sort of you know, trajectory in terms of like acceptance of like gay gay rights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's almost like pop, meanwhile, you know, that you don't get this kind of, as it were, queer presence anymore, Frankie or whatever. Where are the Frankies? Of this? Where, where, you know, where are the village peoples and people like that? This is, obviously, this would have been, I'm sure, popular in the gay clubs or whatever. It's, it's essentially, it's a sort of modern piece of high energy or whatever, but it's almost like quite discreet, almost kind of coded in that way that, like, gay pop had to be. It's always fronted by a kind of, you know, pretty sort of loud, brassy female or whatever. So, um, and I guess that's probably what it was, and it's possible that, like, so, yeah, it, number 18, I imagine it had a bit of a boost in the clubs or whatever, and then thought, yeah, let's, fuck it, let's throw it out again, and, um, yeah, and gets number one. No, it's a, it crossed over by this point. I mean, this was, uh, you know, you'd have heard this in Ministry of Sound and places like that uh, on their less niche nights. It's uh, No, this is one of the best singles of the 90s, um, and it's it's not even the best of these records right like you sure do by strike was just dropping out of the charts at this point and uh let me be a fantasy by baby d was 6 months previous and i've put them yes. above this but it this it is almost the pure essence of that sound it's just a just a thin bright strip of pure elation and it's so clean with the suggestion of sex and so basic with the suggestion of complexity um and with the exception of mock subversion there's not much you can ask for from a pure pop record which this doesn't give you there's not a hint of personal pretension or preening banality um and i wish i'd been a dancey type and lived in this 90s world rather than having to visit on day release um what I do remember is that at the time people were incredibly dubious of this Euro music um, because yeah. it's like everyone thought they were a little bit European in the 90s, right? But they could only accept mm. Euro culture when it was classy or arty because that was its role within the Brit-defined pop aesthetic. Nobody liked the vulgar mm. Euro aesthetic. Like, you know, when you go to Germany and there's like sort of 40 foot billboards by the side of the road and they're shocking pink with like a chicken with a fucking baby's head on it you know and it's completely <laughs> gross and it's like you know it's like an advert for for a, a supermarket or something it's ultra direct <laughs> visual sense and when euros did the same thing in music everyone turned their nose up even though these records yeah. or the best of them have this tremendous undertow of poignancy and magic and to me just about everything about this clip makes me feel that there's a point to living rather than shed seven which just makes you want to die after killing them and then turning the gun on yourself <laughs> um and every time i ever heard a record like this at the time i felt such a burk for ending up stuck on what was effectively a brick pot paper uh, not that there was any kind of paper where you could write about living joy with any kind of thought or intensity. That that forum didn't exist. And in fact, Melody Maker was probably the closest you could get. Uh, but, you know, you didn't mm. interview these groups. I don't know, maybe Attitude would have covered them. I mean, they they were on our floor um, at uh, Dickie Desmond's That's Wank right. Factory. They were the, they were the cool yeah. corner. And, uh, oh, man, the shit they got. 
Fucking hell, they just started. They just started working there around about the same time as me, and uh, they were having their first meeting. And they, you know, they they basically poached all these top writers in the kind of like in the in the in the gay magazine community. And you know, all of them have said, "No, I'm not working for Desmond. He's a he's a smut peddler and all this kind of stuff." Managed to get all these people in, and they have their first kind of like editorial meeting. And halfway through, Desmond bursts in with all of his henchmen. And he's introducing some. Uh, he's, 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 you know, showing someone around the building, and uh, he he looks at him and he goes, "Oh, these are my puffs. Say hello, puffs." <laughs> there was there was one bloke who used to do. Uh, it, well, he used to do odd jobs all over the place. He, you know, he'd work a little bit here, work a little bit there. Um, seen as a, 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 you know, a bit of a bit of a twat, and uh, he'd fucked up on something, and his punishment was to sit next to Attitude. They moved his desk and put it next to Attitude. He says, oh, you've you've fucked up. You're sitting next to the puffs. And um, a week later, he'd kind of like got his shit together and sorted out a couple of things. And then all of a sudden, we're, we're all sitting there on the big open plan office and the lift doors open and it's Desmond and his right-hand man. And uh, they're rubbing their hands and laughing, and everyone's going, "Oh fucking hell!" Because all the desks were were po- pointed towards the uh, the lift door, so everyone could see who was coming in and who was coming in late and who was leaving early. And if you know if Desmond had arrived on the floor, and they're rubbing their hands together and they're, they're going over to uh, his desk, and he says, "Right, you've done really well. We're moving you away from the puffs." They got either side of his desk, they lifted it, they moved it one inch away, and put it down again. And went, right, if you're good next week, we'll move you another inch. And they all, you know, they walked off pissing themselves laughing. And we're all just sitting there just, just thinking, oh, my God, what must what those poor fuckers yeah, that's think? That's a surprising story because I always that thought Desmond would be a nice bloke. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, yeah. no. I suppose absolutely the world's crassest man. Fun times. But anyway, this It's strange to me, like I say, that it's that, that despite the kind of leaps and bounds and gains and understanding whatever and... And rights acquired, you know, by you know, by, by gays in the nineteen nineties and, and, and onward. That it's almost like everything's gone back to I me. Mean, this is a very, almost like very coded, you know. You kind of, you know, oh yeah, this is the gay record, isn't it? You know, what was it? It's all male dancers and stuff. And um, but it's all gone back to being something. You know, you're not getting the kind of very good male dancers as well, aren't they? They're the, they're the best. They're the best mm. dancers, I think, yeah, on yeah, top of the pops. Yeah. But you're not getting that kind of explicitness that you had ten years earlier with Frankie Goes to Hollywood. It's all, it all now has to be infamous no. and coded and represented by strong, brassy women, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it's stayed like that ever yeah. since, you know. Yeah, kind of black black women were the um, kind of like um, substitute homosexual yeah, yeah, yeah. men yeah, of the yeah, 90s, right, weren't they? Yeah, but, you know, it's one I mean, you know, Teddy makes a very good point On about top of the pops, anyway. It's absolutely direct. It doesn't fuck about. It's, it's to the point. Um... And yeah, the, the, you know, the, the, it, it, it's it's probably yeah, yeah, it deserves its number one status. You know, yeah, it's it, I mean, it's it's clearly a, an ecstasy record as well, um, like unmistakably, um, and like maybe poppers as well, and like most records that directly parallel the effects of a particular drug. You know, it only does one thing, but it's good and it works. I mean, I probably feel closer to happiness listening to this record uh, than at any other time uh, except except when I'm karate chopping dogs in the face but you know uh, <laughs> it, yeah, it's, I mean I don't understand how anyone could not be transported by this record could not just uh, 
be filled with delight. So what's the difference between this tune in 1995 and its equivalent in 1990 or 1988? Because to these untrained ears, I'm, I'm not hearing much of a difference. I think, well, in the late 80s, like I say, the predecessor of it was high energy, which is kind of big sort of electro-funky sound, slightly more kind of mechanical or whatever. This is more of a sort of happy house type kind of vibe, really, I guess. It's, you know, slightly more sort of, you know, slightly more kind of elastic sound, I guess. If you look at the, the sort of Italian house stuff, the, I mean, this is a clear development from that. It's just... Um, when you go from the 80s into the 90s, it just gets stripped down and sped up and becomes more direct, which is like the opposite to what happens to most musical styles as time goes on, where they get slower and, and looser, you know, and more complex. So the following week, Dreamer dropped down to number two, usurped by Robson and Jerome's Massacre of Unchained Melody. Fucking hell, we dodged a bullet there, didn't we, chaps? <laughs> The follow-up, Don't Stop Moving, got to number five in June of 1996, and they'd have three more top 20 hits before calling it a day in 1999. That's a pretty good run for a, a 90s dance band, isn't it? Yeah. Usually had the uh, had the career span of uh, Mayflies. Yeah. Yeah, but when you, when you go to the route, the Italian producer sat in a windowless bunker, as usually had a 30-year career. Next week's show is going to be presented by top gooner Lisa Ianson, plus a Pulp exclusive and a Butler and McCalmont exclusive as well. We'll play out with the police and I'll see you Saturday. Good night. After telling us what's going to be on next week, Mayo signs off by shilling his programme and introduces the live version of Can't Stand Losing You by The Police. This version of The Police's first chart hit, which got to number two in August 1979, was recorded at the Orpheum Theatre in Boston in November of 1979 and was the sole single release from their LP Live, a double CD set which is due to be released at the end of the month. And it's a new entry this week at number 27. Well, we're, we're 15 and a half years removed from this and it it might as well be fifth It feels like it's the, the other side of the sun, really, doesn't it? Yeah, it's strange that this particular point that people should have been sort of, you know, harking, harking back to this. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it has to be said, that, look, we all know what a golden age, a golden age reggae it was you know, in the mid to late 70s, you know, from Kate Bush, 10CC, Elvis Costello, Paul Nicholas, and, of course, the police. Um, yeah. And um, what happened to <laughs> reggae? Well, you know. But um, you know what? I have to yeah. confess it, though. I, I, I love The Police, and actually I find it impeccable. I think The Police' first two or three albums are absolutely impeccable. I thought it was excellent what they did. That's funny, because in a previous uh, in a previous chart music when we covered The Police, uh, a certain Mr Price uh, pulled out um, your uh, comment that you were comparing them unfavourably to Nirvana, or vice versa. Yes, fair enough. So I heard the ding ding on Smells Like Teen Spirit. Mm. And being a kind of jaded rock hack, you know, to whom, you know, basically there's nothing new under the sun and everything's happened before, I thought, well, this is just basically the police, isn't yeah. it? And I probably said something to that effect in a review or whatever. Um, 
guilty as charged of, of, of doing that, you know, because Nirvana was something in their own right and not merely police copyists. But, I mean, this song, I mean, when you compare um, the police to um, Supergrass and Shed 7, I think they, they come out of it quite favourably. They come out of this quite favourably, I think. They, they sound a bit sinuous and a bit yeah, punchier. Yeah. And um, they don't sound like Shed 7, is what I'm trying to say. They don't, indeed. They look wankerish, especially like Stuart Copeland and Sting. You know, there's 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 strong hints of the wanker. So they may well have, you know, certainly well, especially one of those mm. two turned out to be. But um, but no, musically, actually, it's unimpeachable. I don't know about that. You get thirty-one seconds of this, and it feels like it goes on for hours, and it sucks all the energy of the last few minutes down its long drain. <laughs> and you know, I mean. I'm not going to deny that the police made a couple of all right records, but, I mean, you think, is it possible to give less of a toss about anyone than was given about the police in early 1995? Mm. But, again, it's this dark shape under the water, like this reminder that the circles were growing smaller and the day was almost done. And, you know, a few years down the line, it would just be back to this, you know, Mm. back to this. But it was nice to see that video with them larking around, trying to look yeah. like mates. It's yes. pretty nauseating <laughs> when you think about what was actually going on in that band. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's definitely very odd that this should have appeared, and also the fact that it's live, also there's a certain kind of roughness that is going to potentially suffer by comparison with the kind of mild, more immaculately produced 90, mid-90s fair. I mean, what, what what's happened to make them want to release this? I mean, was it time... For Sting to go, oh yeah, well, it, it, it's time for me to start banging on about my old band because my solo career is not really doing much at the minute. I think this is what happens when you go back to these kind of like, when you do these kind of retrospectives, and it's surprising the whole sh- schedule of reissues or whatever doesn't seem to make an awful lot of sense. And you know, so you realise that something by the Beatles is at number five in 1981 or whatever. And you think, what, what was that all about? Um, and it's, it doesn't seem to kind of be particularly logical. It doesn't seem to particularly chime in with what was happening in the mid-90s. Um, but, you know, the police were huge. And if they were to re, you know, re- reissue a live album, it was, I suppose it was sufficient heft that it would warrant at least, you know, a kind of glancing appearance on Top of the Pops. Mm. But also remember that if you were in the police when you were at university, when they were current, at this point you'd only be in your mid-30s. And this is the beginning of people over 30 continuing to be pop consumers, Mm. you know. Mm. They don't feel that they have to stop. Like now where, you know, even old gits like us feel like somehow we're still still part of the pop audience you know? <laughs> there's nothing as well it's to do with the nature of pop consumption I mean it's, it's funny watching this episode one of the notes I made is this like everything seems modern beyond repair but this is pre-internet and at this point there was such a phenomenon as f- what people call 50 pound man yeah and, was, and I was one of them you know who yes. went out and shopped and spent about 50 quid and what you might get for your 50 quid is not much more than a kind of a CD I mean, a, a Steptoe a VHS video of yeah. Steptoe some with three episodes for nine ninety nine or something. You'd come away with not very much at all. You get all that stuff, you know, for about sort of ten or fifteen quid now, or just download yeah. it. But yeah, and I guess that like you know, the, this album would have been an artifact, and people have gone out and bought it and felt it was money well spent. You know, such yeah. as the pop economy back yeah. then. I mean, Sting um, is two years removed from his last solo album and a year away from his next one. 
on. So, yeah, it's, uh, mm. yeah. yeah, he'd, have, he'd, like, have, yeah. he'd have waved it through, wouldn't he? Mm. But, I mean, of course, you know, we're talking about 1995, which is, you know, the, the supposedly the apex of Britpop, but, you know, it's also the same year when all the old shit comes back because at the end of the year we're going to have Beatles Anthology and Free as a Bird and all that kind of stuff, yeah, aren't we? So That's right. And and this was, I think, this was the year in which the Beatles sold the most records. Right. In their career. Yeah. Yeah, and also as well as uh, people who are slightly older than usual still buying pop and rock records. Yeah. You had a, a new generation who liked old stuff and felt no sort of, uh, no pressure to reject old stuff, mm. right? And, you know, you sort of, uh, it was just accepted now that if you were 21, especially if you like guitar music, that the guitar music of 30 years prior would be something that you would uh, worship and revere rather than something that you felt needed to be smashed. Yeah. You know? but I mean, of course, yes. A strong inferiority complex in terms of, like, you know, rock and pop past, definitely. Yeah, and a, and a justified inferiority complex, it has to be said. It's not just that these kids were all backwards looking. It was that, you know, they listened to Shed 7 and then it's like, yeah. you know, have you ever heard of this group, The Smiths, from 10 years ago? <laughs> it's, the, it's like Shed 7, but about a thousand times better. <sighs> but, I mean, we are, you know, we are seeing a lot of bands who are looking back to the late, to, to, to the British rock bands of the late, 70s but you know you wouldn't think the police would be one of the bands they'd be looking at was anybody trying to copy the police at this time in 1995 well apart from Nevada of course um, yes <laughs> don't think they were doing that in 1995 yeah, yeah, to be honest yeah, yeah. So I'm talking about broadly about the 90s of course yeah um, <laughs> No, no, there weren't. No, the police, like I say, it was the other side of the sun. I mean, you know, it was, I think, like Joy Division or whatever. I mean, 1995, Joy Division couldn't seem further away from the spirit of the times. And, um, yeah, anything like that, that punk, post-punk era or whatever, it was... Um, but I think, you know, so the sad, yes, it's certain people of a certain age, you know, probably got a little bit of disposable income, and this would have been an essential £20 purchase. So, the following week, Can't Stand Losing You dropped 22 places to number 49. Anyway, what is on TV afterwards? Well, BBC One is now showing some chameleons on Wildlife on One, then Paul Merton's Life of Comedy, the 9 o'clock news, the last ever episode of Absolutely Fabulous, a repeat of Men Behaving Badly, then Question Time, and the Elizabeth Montgomery film Sins of the Mother. BBC Two is showing a documentary about child anorexics, then the documentary series Minders, Crying for Help about psychiatrists in East London, Top Gear, the film Blind Judgment, and finishes off with Newsnight and Late Review. ITV is now screening Julia Somerville looking at wild bird egg snatchers in 3D, The Bill, 
heartbeat than some walruses are chopped up and fed to foxes in Animal Detectives, News at 10, the Frost programme and the London Monarchs versus the Scottish Claymores in the World League of American Football. Channel 4 is running the sports programme Fair Game, then Brookside, the animal documentary series The Tool Users, then a documentary about Lockerbie, then a debate about that documentary, then the kids in the hall, dispatchers and then Chocha out of Happy Days plays a teenage alcoholic in the TV film The Boy Who Drank Too Much. Fuck Chocha. Fucking Donald Trump supporter. <laughs> Kids in the Hall was good. Mm. ITV's got a lot of um, crime and uh, animal mm. shit. Yeah. And even animal crimes. But that was the last ever episode of Absolute Football in 1995. My God. Yes. I mean, it probably wasn't yeah. the last, I'm sure they came... Well, they did a few specials afterwards, like but yeah. You know, seven, yeah. You know. Wow. Yeah. So, me boys, what are we talking about in the Melody Maker offices tomorrow? Or the pub next to the Melody Maker offices? Yeah. Taylor, were you, were you, did you come in and brag on about your, your lovely day out? Yeah, yeah. I've just, I went, went to the top of the pops being filled and been like, oh, and yeah. it was skill. I, I, I do remember Taylor coming into the office at this time and talking about how he'd just seen Living Joy on top of the pops the previous night and it made him feel so alive. So did he come good. in on roller skates pulled by a couple of dogs in some white trousers <laughs> or something? Yeah, that was another day. Um, I don't know you see the trouble with this top of the pops there's not a lot there to uh, stimulate playground or workplace chat Mm. the next day and there wasn't that much at the time I mean it it took a a fire starter to do that you know what I mean by this point and it's the problem with everyone thinking they're cool it's that they think they don't really have to try Mm. or they don't have to you know put a flaming headdress on or something Mm. you know it's a bit of a shame. I mm. think what's good about this episode, it, it's a solitary reminder of like a certain kind of reality. One reality, for instance, about the 1990s is that one of the biggest acts was the Lighthouse family. Mm. This was, you know, 1995, people look back, it was the year of Ozzy, the year of Britpop. You know, it was the year of all of this stuff, actually. I mean, the closest, mm. I think, that, that, that you get to a sort of sense of the rumble of the times is actually the Supergrass thing, to be honest, I suppose. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, out of this particular selection... Um, Probably, probably be just talking a little bit about that because in 1995 it's still a rumble. We don't even quite know at this at this point. I still think Oasis are good. You know, I mean, it's not. You know, the, the whole Britpop thing hasn't sort of happened. There isn't a sort of aftermath of that recognition of it all. It still seems like an emergent energy even at this time. Yeah, I mean, how much how much of the Britpop stuff was actually just whipped up by your lot in order to sell a few extra copies? I think it was just, for me, it was just the fact that, like, new guitar bands had nowhere to go um, except to be slightly kind of, sort of retro or whatever. And there's some sort of very kind of modest flotilla, you know, among all that lot. Um, you know, your jeans and your recabellies and people like that. And um, um, so, but I think they were all, there was a definite drift and it was sort of, you know, guitar music that was a kind of, like, just replete with reminders of the past um and Britpop is obviously a very kind of you know nostalgia thing it's a very sort of heritage kind of thing it's almost like you know this is what we're about this is the tradition we've established i sort of said all i had to say about the 90s and i wrote a massive article which is probably still on the which you must read if you've not pop crazy youngsters if you've not read this Taylor Park's Britpop, whack them into Google and read. It's fucking, it's an amazing I article, think it's Taylor. still on the quietest. You see, the thing is, uh, I spilled my it guts is. out in that. And it's, I mean, I didn't just want to repeat myself, but it's, um, 
But it is strange looking back because um, this is my youth. And I think that's partly why um, I haven't thought of that many funny things to say this week. I've just been, you know, ranting on about stuff. Because this is my youth and there's a sense that doing this now is like the big end of a day in the life piano chord that just closes (laughs) that chapter, right? Like I lived it, then I Mm. talked about it. Now now it's just middle age uh, illness and death. Uh, lying ahead so that's why I've been a little bit sober this week that and the that and the cold but um if we're plugging the, I mean I did write this book called 1996 in the end of history and I was going to write this whole enormous book about the 1990s yes, which is a very good it, it, read it, it, um but then I thought no that's just you know we um that's just too huge a project really for the you know the money I was potentially getting whatever so I switched I just focused specifically on the year of 1996 but I suppose one of the broad things and it was you know like 1995 it, 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 it was this unique decade the 1990s people talk about everyone always says you know we live in troubled times and people were saying in the 1990s all mm. these are troubled times but these was news you've got to untroubled times and that's not likely to be revisited at any no. point in the future. Um, you know, it's a combination, I suppose, of like being post, you know, the end of the sort of collapse of the Berlin Wall, um, pre 9-11, you know, it's bookended by those two things sort of geopolitically. Mm. But also it was a relatively, there was actually a relative prosperity um, post-1992. Um, there'd been a bit of a recession in the late 80s, early 90s, and it produced all kinds of phenomena. It produced this kind of euphoria mm. Um, you know, that's manifested in anybody from sort of like, you know, Chris Evans, you know, to Oasis. But it's a strange kind of euphoria. It's not like the 60s euphoria, which is very future looking. You know, we're on the verge of mm. the age of Aquarius. It's very much almost like kind of harking back to the spirit of 66 that's then going to be manifested in like yeah. Euro 96 and, and, uh, and whatever. It's not particularly no. future looking. You know, it's, it's still averting its Everything's going to be all right again, it's, it's, um, like it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so you know, so it was a very odd mood in the 1990s, and so I was looking at it, it's interesting that I see, you know, like there's certain things like supergrass or whatever, or part of a thing that's kind of building towards the crest of that or whatever, and then later there's a realization of how kind of slightly staid and disappointing conservative is, you know, conservative is, but um, yeah. and what are we buying on Saturday? Do you know what? I, I'd be tempted by... I think the old Scatman thing is... I mean, it's a terrible sort of, like, chassis to the record or whatever. But there's something... I have a sort of, like, great softness, for, you know, for a soft spot for Scat. It's a lovely mm. backstory. Um, and Scat, you know, was obviously something that Louis yeah. Armstrong developed in the 1920s when he was at the Hot Five. And the story is that, like, he was singing... It's the heebie-jeebies, I think it is, mm. the record. And um, the story is that... Um, he dropped his lyric sheets, and so he had to kind of vocally improvise, you know, on the spot. And this is considered one of the great innovations yeah. of the 20th century, you know. It's like vocals that depart from the verbal, you know. And so scat is actually an enormous kind of thing, you know, potentially in the 20th century. And so, it, you know, obviously it's a bit kind of gimmicky and retro here, but I have a tremendous soft spot for it. And, he, you know, he does some lovely scatting, you know. I think that... You know, I think the scat man, you know, especially to say, you know, his eventual fate and all that, it's probably the most affecting thing for me, actually, of all the things that we listen to tonight. What does this episode tell us about 1995? In terms of the charts, it tells me uh, what I remember to have been the case, which is that the British charts were mostly split between three styles, which was American mm. R&B, Eurodance... Yeah. And a bit of Britpop, and almost everything else had to fit in around that and yeah. uh, take on that form, whether it was 
Eurovision or uh, boy bands because uh, Take That are in the chart with their uh, their sort of Gallagher-like ballad. Um, yeah. Even football records up to a point, but, you know, they always drag behind a bit, so, you know. Yeah. But there's not much in this show that doesn't fall somewhere in that triangle. Britpop is kind of represented quite strongly in this episode, but it's not dominating it. Well, it never dominated anything. That's the thing, except for the bloody music papers. I mean, it was, like I say, it was like most of these groups were, were you know, uh, scraping in at number 35, you know. For me, it's there is the sense that, as I say, even before the internet comes along and has this kind of ruinous effect on the music industry, music writing, all that kind of stuff, you know, people are suddenly... You know, I mean, there was a lot of money around in the industry at this particular point, but I mean, but obviously, post mm. the internet, when that really kicks in in the 21st century, the broadband or whatever, all that money disappears and um, that creates a terrible crisis. But even at this point, it's almost like even if the internet had never been invented, there would have been a crisis because the cupboard of the new is getting a bit bare, basically. And I think you see all kinds of stuff here. I mean, you know, mm. it's almost like, if, it, you know, this is a strong sense of the sort of the retrograde, I think, that you're getting throughout this episode um, that there aren't there isn't going to be and people still people still imagine blindly that, that the, the detonation that was punk that was one of these things it was like a kind of Icelandic geezer it was just like in another you know in a certain period of time it will happen again you know these these eruptions are periodic there was one in the 60s there was punk and there'll be another one soon don't worry but I was thinking no there won't be any more eruptions like this hmm. um, that, and, and there actually weren't and and I think that by this time you really get the sense of that that, that you know that, that in both rock and pop you're facing this sort of ecological crisis basically I think the one thing you can take away from this episode, looking back from, you know, two decades later, is uh, never trust an optimist. (laughs) And that, Pop Craze Youngsters, is the end of this episode of Chart Music. All that remains for me to do is the usual shit. www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chart music podcast you can join us on twitter at chart music t-o-t-p and of course you can chuck us some money at patreon.com slash chart music before we go let me just thank some more people who'd laid the money down for chart music james retter robin goad tim caser ian gray michael gale gareth murden matthias recker Steve Parsons, Tim Robinson, Conrad Newton, Mark Brennan, Blake Norton, Frith Tiplader, and Char. They all stepped up to the pay window. They all slapped the dollar on the counter. They've all been snogged by us behind the bus shelter. They're in the chart music gang. So, <laughs> thank you very much, Taylor Parks. Cheers. Thank you very much, David Stubbs. Thank you, Al. A privilege as hey. ever. My name's Al Needham and skidididibly biddly ba 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 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Simon Mayo's Pilgrimage to the Holy Land, tonight at 7 on Radio 1.